0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, reading A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 133, Cattle and Five in a Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And this is a
1: dense chapter. There's a lot.
0: <sighs> Man, I love this. We were just talking off the record, off the air, that uh, last chapter was fun, right, with the whole shadow baby thing, but we're so glad to call off the shadow babysitter and just get into the knit and grit of politics and sadness and sadness and war. I guess we left politics and sadness and war. okay, so you know what I'm saying. It's a good chapter
1: it's It's a really good chapter, yeah, I know that you know, last time was full of bangers, but this is like a
0: emotional. moving in several ways it's like sad it feels defeated it feels a little triumph there's Mm -hmm. hope there's like hope at a better future going on it hits all the emotional palette on the way down
1: it really does and i mean bangers can also be emotional but this is not the only thing getting banged Mm -mm. up is my heart you know (laughs) okay
0: (laughs) I I guess I do. (laughs) This is a person who knows you, Eliana, who spends so many hours with you. I'm gonna just nod my head and say yes. Well, before we jump into the meat of this episode, let's chat about Patreon this month. If you're a Patreon member in the Stranger Tier and above, you get special episodes every month. Sometimes they're A Song of Ice and Fire related. Sometimes they're His Dark Materials related. Sometimes... Sometimes they might be a miscellaneous, a miscellaneous episode. It could be coming to you, could be coming to you. But this month, here at the end of July, you will be getting an episode on the free cities in a song of ice and fire. If you're in that Patreon tier, stranger, $5 tier and above, we're going to talk about Lorath this month, which I'm excited about to talk about Lorath and the ancient maze keepers. So much interesting lore. And I'm excited Eliana, I think you are excited. You came to me with a Patreon idea for next month, that it's a little different. It's a little off the wall.
1: It's a little different, everyone. So usually we alternate our Patreon episodes between the no Song of Ice and Fire and a Historic Materials episode, right? And obviously this month is in the Song of Ice and Fire one, but you know, speaking of bangers, we thought we were going to remix it a little next month. Different children's book, also about a strong-spirited girl. We're gonna do Ella Enchanted for August Patreon episode.
0: Eliana Enchanted. That's what she's <laughs> saying right now. She's looking straight at the camera and she's going, Eliana Enchanted." Uh, no, I am excited, and I think uh, I might even rewatch the abysmal really? movie adaptation just for it. kicks. You know, we should watch it before we talk about it. I think we should, just because you-, you need to have the full grasp. Maybe we can unearth some crazy details and just really dig into the meat of what they did to our heroine. Uh, I- I'm excited either way. I love Ella Enchanted, and I think it's going to be a fun look at just some of the tropes that surround our little fantasy heroines. Yeah. See what we can dig up from both series, right? From a Song of Ice and Fire, His Dark Materials, and a bunch of other works that relate to Ella Enchanted and our thoughts on all.
1: Absolutely. And like, you know, same as how His Dark Materials was part of my growing up, so it was Ella Enchanted and I, and I think also part of yours. Mm-hmm. We both reread this book, what, many times. I read mine I got until... very
0: car sick in the back yeah. of the car reading this book at least five times in my life.
1: My book uh, fell but apart. But I kept reading
0: it, God damn it! Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, I may have been carsick, but at least I read Ella Enchanted. Okay, it's uh,
1: it's a it's a definitely a favorite, and it holds up. And I, I mean, as far as I can tell, it holds up. So I'm so I'm excited to go into it and just like, yeah, we decided we're gonna yeah. try something different. Let us know what you think, yeah. friends.
0: Yeah, and whether you've read it, watched the movie. The- Or uh, whether, you know, you know nothing about it and you're just looking to listen to us bumble about the story, welcome you to the Patreon. Come on over. It's at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. Bunch of perks for different tiers. And, you know, we just had a blast this weekend with our friend and patron, Julie, and you. You guys put together this amazing bingo, a swath trivia uh, kind of event and we just had fun doing it and all kind of laugh because there were some really hard questions yeah. this past weekend i i got stumped on a couple i messed a couple up but it, it was fun knowing some of the answers and having everybody kind of argue with each other and convince <laughs> each other no it's actually this and, and be like no this quote was from this person they all like convinced themselves just from the, the thought train it's really fun to watch i got so much shit wrong Ugh
1: same i mean i didn't have to compete because you know i worked with julie but it, i mean all of that was julie julie came up with all those questions and ideas and yeah some of them were very tricksy
0: <laughs> you were messaging me during it being like wait is that stannis wait no that quote's not stannis it's it's tywin right wait is it this question mark and i was like wait a second i thought you did this Eliana. but julie is the mastermind oh she- yeah She's like an organizational queen about it, too. It was just really well done. A big thank you to her for helping out and being another, another one of your hosts at brunch. If you're in the Thunder tier, the $10 tier and above, you get a couple perks like early access, an annual Girls Gone Canon gift, which very excited there. about that sending soon. Um, It was revealed at brunch this weekend. We'll be revealing it to patrons soon. And details about its shipping will be going out very shortly in the next few weeks, handful of weeks here. Uh, I am excited about that. That's my next big excitement because it's pretty on theme. We'll we'll talk about them on here in the future. Not yet.
1: Yeah, soon, soon. It is also on theme. Uh, It's been funny to see people say that you know, interestingly, the thing that it's inspired by that they associate with us and hearing our voices. So I'm like, oh, interesting that you'd say that. <laughs> well. That's funny.
0: I'd be interested to know, uh, once we're able to talk freely about it, besides that, be interested to know what other big quotes and moments in the Song of Ice and Fire series, those are the only hints you get right now, everyone, uh, what, what quotes and moments really remind you of us? Because I, I know we have our top lists for sure yeah that remind me of us same (laughs) moments that remind me Uh, of you chloe uh, uh, i'll (laughs) die thinking about your peach so that being said
1: i've been eating a lot of peaches lately but um
0: i really love your peaches want to shake your tree That being
1: said, while while next month's Patreon episode is not going to be His Dark Materials, we are still putting out His Dark Materials content.
0: Yes, make sure you tune in last week of each month for your Amber Spyglass helping. If you are a His Dark Materials fan, if you've read the main trilogy, come join us. Or if you're reading right now and you're getting caught up and you're reading the Amber Spyglass in preparation for the third season of The Great hbo bbc adaptation the best of them all the experience his dark materials uh, if you're watching it and you're catching up with the books come hang out with us we're, we're i am ab- about to be devastated and sad the rest of my life for catalan devastated and sad the rest of my life for his dark materials series three and the amber spyglass yeah <sighs> come let us ruin your life some more
1: but i think people want that
0: from us <laughs>
1: Is that, is is that, that why true, you people listeners? are here? <laughs> yeah, to feel
0: things, to feel feelings. Step on us with your brain uh, and your thoughts. Uh, Alright, well, I guess I will. Guess I will.
1: <laughs> well, this week, we did not pull any emails and tweets of note, but people have said some cool stuff to us, and we appreciate, like, for example, of course, our friend Lo, pulling together another great thread, analyzing... Brienne and Arya
0: in the in the lens of the stranger, yeah, in the lens of the stranger. It was a great thread. We'll definitely throw it in the details below, so check it out. But we'll come back to some notes next week from you all. We're going to jump in since this is a very very meaty chapter and start with our lightning round with John four. The Night's Watch waits for the rest of its power at the fist of the first men, and Ghost leads John to a cache of dragon glass.
1: Brand five. Jojen's prophecy begins to come true, and Bran's warnings are ignored. A villainous man named Reek is found by the Northmen.
0: An alternate part of that lightning round would be Asharadane's son's prophecy. Uh, oh, okay. So Tyrion 8. <laughs> Tyrion 8. In the aftermath of Renly's murder, Tyrion and the small council decide to court roses.
1: Theon 3. Threon. Theon admits to Dagmar his plans to prove himself to his father. Chloe's <laughs> so upset. <laughs> Why are it. you so inappropriate
0: at in all times? I can't take you anywhere. Three on. Three Are Aria 8. No, I'm Three on. Thank you very much. <laughs> Arya 8. Arya gives Jaqen Weese's name, but as she watches Tywin and his host leave, she feels regret at her kills. (laughs) Regrets.
1: And that brings us to Cat 5. Catelyn returns, and it feels like she's missed three months of her life. The phrase creep and grow slowly amongst the Stark ranks, and Catelyn takes some new protection of her own. She receives her lord's bones after seeing what's becoming of her father's.
0: <laughs> Sad. Catalin and her team are spotted two days from River Run by a Frey scout. She asks if they can be taken to the Blackfish, but he's gone west with the King. Martin Rivers, a bastard-born son of Walder Frey, commands the outriders in Brynden's stead. She's unsurprised that Rob decides to go west. He'd been contemplating it when he sent her away
1: yeah so it's interesting that, as Kat contemplates this decision, she thinks of it as Rob striking at the end, and the line is heart of Lannister power, but like Rob doesn't really do that like he doesn't take Casterly Rock, nor does he take King's landing right i mean he he does hold Jamie Lannister, and that's quite significant, but he he mostly like it, the biggest damage is, I guess, towards like the houses in Lannisport, right? Like, and later this chapter, it's interesting because Kat turns out does long to strike at the heart of Lannister power, as we're going to find as this chapter develops. And it's a desire that she has been denying herself throughout the past few chapters, but that really starts to blossom in this one. And it's a desire that obviously she very much gives into as Lady Stoneheart. But anyway, we learn later this chapter that Rob. Couldn't take Casterly Rock. The reason why is because he doesn't have any siege engines, which is pretty interesting because it tells us, of course, about Casterly Rock's defenses. So we're getting some of that world building here. And it's also just like an interesting tidbit to consider when you think about it alongside what's happening at Storm's End right now, which we learned about a little in this chapter, um, and the need to hold on to that symbol of power, right? Your, Your seat. And that's part of why Stannis wants it other than, you know, his sketchy reasons for wanting Edric Storm. And, you know, it's interesting also considering what else is happening in this book when he doesn't take Casterly Rock, because, like, had Rob had Siege Engines, had he taken Casterly Rock, obviously everything would be very different in this story, but the Lannister heart of power is well fortified and guarded, I will say for now, because, you know, things I think are going to happen in the Winds of Winter and in A Dream of Spring, but while that's fortified, like, the heart of Northern power is, as we know, becoming quite vulnerable with the things that happen in Threon. um, And we know it's impending. (laughs) I'm just doing this to piss you off now.
0: (laughs) I was so upset by that that I couldn't even fire you. I was too busy cackling. She was too shocked. Uh, I'm still kind of in shock. I I do think there's a lot going on in the West that, like, everything but Casterly Right. And obviously, as we'll talk about, once the Great John's captured, uh, that they obviously don't retain a lot of those riches, but Casterly remains untouched. And that does kind of pave the way for a major showdown to possibly eventually happen there for future armies, right? That need that gold. Yeah. Um, had they gotten at that, gotten that gold out of there, dude, it'll be game over. <laughs> money, money, money. Baddyaddyaddyaddy, uh. <laughs> Martin Rivers is camped two hours away, and Catalin commands to be taken to him. The scout asks if they come from Bitterbridge, and she's like, Nope, sure didn't, never even heard of it. She's concerned the camp might see her, coming straight from where all the madness just occurred. She adds she's heard Renly was slain and asks, Does my brother hold command in River Run? He is. He is guarding Rob's rear. She thinks, Gods grant him the strength to do so, and the wisdom as well.
1: And your defense squad assemble!
0: We're definitely going to do some Edmure defending, right? Some cattle and critiquing, some Edmure defending. It's about to happen. It's coming.
1: Yep. And your Tully stan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Catlin asks for word of Rob in the West, and the scout is surprised that they haven't heard... Rob won a great victory at Oxcross, killing Stafford Lannister and scattering his host. Wendell whoops in response, and Catelyn only nods. There's a line of, tomorrow's trials concerned her more than yesterday's triumphs.
0: There's that wisdom. I will give her that. That is wisdom.
1: It is, but it is also anxiety, and I relate. <laughs> <laughs> but the delay in Cat getting this information, I think, really helps show the timing and like how delayed things are, because... We knew about this victory, actually, prior to Kat's last chapter, even, because it comes up in Sansa's, you know, she gets, like, beaten for it, and also, you know, bless Sir Wendell for cheering. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, gotta keep the morale up, right? A win is a win. We'll take a win. Uh, But also, I see Catelyn, you know, who's already just being lapped by information. I mean... It really is significantly pointed out. She was riding for a month almost in each direction, pretty much, right? And she spent almost a few weeks there, a few days, a few weeks, whatever. Like yeah. each way. It basically was like May when she left camp at River Run. And it's August now that she's coming back, most timelines kind of compare to. Because I was trying to understand how long exactly it had been. And I'm a like, the whole financial quarter. A whole quarter, exactly. A lot can Q1. happen when... <laughs> she's... All of Q1. And, you know, now that she's further from the cause, this entrance, it's so pointed that the frays are everywhere, and it's honestly really mm. parallel to the Sansa chapters with the Tyrells appearing at court and the Reach men appearing at court and infiltrating their way in bit by bit, uh, just like them spreading and growing through the Lannister and Baratheon court. These frays are spreading as well, very quickly.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and that's going to come up again later this chapter. Uh, as you said, they, are, they arrive finally at Martin River's camp. It is in the shell of a shattered holdfast with a roofless stable and a hundred fresh graves. Uh, awesome, I guess, but not at all. And he falls to one knee at Catelyn's arrival, offering her safety and escort back to Riverrun for her brother. And Catelyn is worried at this. She's like, wait, what about Hoster? And... They're like, he's okay, but it's more that we want to hurry because we're afraid that the Lannisters could catch us because, you know, Tywin's marching west from Harrenhal with all of his power and Catelyn frowns because she's like, Stannis will be on the march soon enough as well. And, you know, it's spoiler because you already know what happens in those chapters. They did not march soon enough and it fucked them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It fucked them.
0: (sighs) Tywin is kind of this persistent beat in this chapter. There's two beats going on and Tywin is one of them and He's on the move. It's three days, maybe four tops until he gets by them. And they have eyes all along the road, but they say that it's not safe for her to stay for long, so she does not. Rivers breaks down his camp real quick, saddles up beside Catalin. They're about 50 strong now, flying beneath the Direwolf, Trout, and Twin Tower banners. It almost feels triumphant for a moment, right? Like You're like, oh yay, what a great alliance, but then in my heart I'm like, no, no. The men want to hear more about Rob's victory and Martin Rivers' Oblige's. There's a singer come to River Run, calls himself Rymond the rhymer. He's made a song of the fight. Doubtless you'll hear it sung tonight, my lady. Wolf in the night, this Rymond calls it. We don't get any lyrics to this song, but I'm curious if we're going to hear them eventually, maybe in The Winds of Winter, uh, maybe when we have the rebirth of the North under the rebirth of John right? A hype new song Mm. being sung about a new young wolf repurposed. A banger. banger. Yeah, a top 40 North hit, because there's only like four of them. Um, (laughs) Ryman actually appears in the next couple chapters. He sings to us during one of the saddest passages for our mother, Catelyn, when uh, he sings The Seasons of Love. Very sad. And later in Cat 2, A Storm of Swords, he is seen again to sing about the stone mill, but We haven't seen him since. Our focus gets changed to Tom of Seven Streams, as Mm. far as the singers in Storm go, and Marillion, obviously. I'm curious if he'll show back up, or if he's just going to be a a rando in the story.
1: I kind of do hope he shows back up. Um, I think it'd be interesting. I like what you were saying earlier about the calling out the the banners, the direwolf, trout, and twin towers ones, and how it seems triumphant. And it's interesting that those are the three that are being displayed most prominently. Obviously, the trout, Tully's uh, the lord paramount of this region, and now the direwolf is the royal banner for them. Mm-hmm. But the twin towers and how you were comparing the Tyrells and the phrase spreading around because the -mm. the Tyrells, they spread around because they anticipate being the queen's house.
0: Mm -hmm, And they kind of anticipate being the queen's house.
1: Makes sense. It all makes sense. Too bad for them, I guess. And for all the rest of us.
0: (laughs) I guess we should all uh, anticipate what's coming for both the phrase and the Tyrells, eh?
1: Oh, shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Gonna pluck some roses and gonna crumble some buildings.
1: Smell like poo, poo, poo.
0: Take him down. You Westerosi think you're your sigils. And the are like, look at me. I'm a block of cement. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> well, he kind of goes on bragging, right? Back at, back at as they ride. Bragging about how Stafford's host fell back on Lannisport, broken. Without siege engines, though, as Eliana mentioned, they couldn't quite storm Casterly. Rob was paying the Lannisters back for the devastation on the Riverlands, he says, with Carstarks and Glovers raiding along the coast and Lady Mormont herding thousands of cattle back to Riverrun. Meanwhile, the Great John seizes the gold mines at Castamere, Nuns Deep, and Pendrick Hills. So I'm of two mines here. This feels pretty big that they're just like taking gold and it will mm-hmm. pay back a lot of, of the funds for the Riverlands, right? To To rebuild when they have people that could rebuild, that aren't busy at war or dying. Uh, It could be a good amount of money sieged, and again, all taken back when Great John's captured, I'm sure. Probably not enough to make up for the burnt riverlands in full, let alone the northern campaign. And again, it does feel kind of pointed that those aren't really houses that are even involved with the Lannisters, so it's like false justice. You're just raiding up and down a coast of people that are Just, they live there, bro. (laughs) They live there. You know, I mean, I'm sure the Castamere is the reigns of Castamere. The Lannisters obviously kind of get shit out a little bit in this story, and I'm sure Castamere has a bad rep, but I think they've behaved well enough in the past few decades. So, I don't know. The image of Mage herding all these animals from the Westerlands is amazing. Yes. So, like, this is my favorite thing. Mage herded all of these animals from the Westerlands and returned them down to the Riverlands just going like, yeah, the whole time yeah, yeah, just riding on her horse I love it that's (sighs) fabulous, that's fascinating
1: it's got like for me big like Fire Elmo GIF energy and I love I like relate to that GIF a lot and I love that, I love Major doing that so much I love mage. Uh, it
0: honestly gives me Breath of the Wild. Oh, uh, also true. Kind of vibes. Yeah, yeah. Riding. And I was very good at riding my horse.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the fun. Except sometimes you're like, horse, what are you doing? But yeah,
0: so great. Or like when you get an animal to come here, and you're like, come here, and again, come here, and then you're like, y'all meet. <laughs> I love- yeah. What a game.
1: You're-, you're oh, oh my god, I'm so excited for Breath of the Wild too. Anyway, um, Pearwin Frey asks how they took the tooth, but he explains that they didn't. They slipped around it in the night, thanks to gray Wind. We have a line of, It said the direwolf showed him the way, that gray Wind of his. The beast sniffed out a goat track that bound down- a defile, and up along beneath a ridge, a crooked and stony way, yet wide enough for men riding single file. The latesters in their watchtowers got not so much a glimpse of them. I'm like, oh, okay, so everyone right now at this point in the book is using magic to sneakily get to shit, to enter things from Rob mm. skin-changing Greywind to Davos <laughs> rowing, you know, shadow babies. I guess technically the magic... Davos wasn't the magic part of rowing but like the shadow baby is a magic part of entering and assassinating but you know
0: no yeah and the magical protections outside storms on though i think you nailed that that's interesting and, and it is so glaring now all the moments where rob is skin changing in the story uh, it's real he's warging it's it's there and it's i feel it's not that I wasn't a believer in the past. I just don't think I focused on it because they are moments that if you blink and you miss it, but this one stands out very much so. There's going to be more. So.
1: Yeah, there's going to be more moments as we progress in Catelyn's chapters and especially like in her conversations with Jane Westerling, but.
0: We'll there I mean, before it felt like it was just them being dramatic, right? If you're just like isolating it in Sansa's chapters, you're like, oh, you're just using this as drama. But now, a- as you mentioned, that, you know, Greywind took them to a place, I'm just wondering. Wondering if his eyes went all wargy wargy on it, you know? Just boop. There they go. He's warging. Yeah. No one knows. Mm
1: hmm. Mm hmm. For sure.
0: Ah, uh, the boy wonder. Well, Martin Rivers lowers his voice, telling them the rumor that Rob cut out Stafford's heart and fed it to the wolf.
1: So I don't think Rob did this, but it is interesting. Uh, the more talk of hearts, anyway. Uh, besides the heart, of also
0: power. stood out like blood sacrifice to me.
1: Mm. Also, uh, Danny eating a heart at one point.
0: Hearts mm, are King hearts are a big shit, part of Danny's uh,
1: Danny's uh, story in this this book. With that big blue heart, House of the Undying, yeah. Yep. and also the fiery heart.
0: Yes, the heart of flame, so to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, your heart's on fire. So we got the fucking on "Sex on Fire" song
0: <laughs> stuck in my head. Um, through the worst way possible, too, through Stannis burning Shireen. Yeah, actually, though, your daughter's on fire. <laughs>
1: Yep. Well, Catelyn sharply ends that talk. Also this one in the book, saying that her son is no such savage. And the men cease to talk. The rivers to say, well, Grey deserved the meal. <laughs> and there's also another line here. The Grey John's been heard to say that the old gods of the North sent those dire wolves to your children. And I'm like, whatever. Whatever. The Grey John just copied that from other John sans great prefix. Alright. John Snow said yeah. it first. <laughs>
0: it's funny because it is a redux right because she also she recalls the day also and it's similar to some of the language from then five dire wolves in the woods and then a sixth for Jon snow no common wolves no indeed she thinks interesting that Jon is one of those persistent beats in this chapter he does come up and the idea of bastardy comes up throughout the rest of the chapter she thinks of him here Again later. First of all, why are you so obsessed with him, Catelyn? Is it guilt? What are you feeling? What no. are you feeling? Nothing, Interesting. first of all. She feels nothing. She's reaching out to feel anything right now. But not, not being facetious now, uh, I am going to be serious here that there is a lot in common with her coming back from Bitterbridge here with Danny and Karth in the next chapter. Mm. Uh, Danny comes back from trying to visit with the Purebred, right? And uh, there's just so many things that I'm seeing back and forth. And here, Danny, when she's feeling kind of desperate in the next chapter, she remembers that she has what the Targaryens in recent history have not had and what they always wanted, which is dragons. So Catelyn here, she thinks about these wolves, and I'm sure it does, as scary as the magic of these crazy, uncommon dire wolves are. I'm sure it is giving her a little bit of comfort right now because it does set them apart, right? Like, they are the first in ages to have these great beasts, these dire wolves. And she thinks about these wolves in Grey Wind and uh, I-, I think it helps her just within cling to, like, maybe these dark, crazy, magical forces were meant to be here doing what we're doing. Maybe my superhero yeah. 16-year-old with this talking magic dog can win.
1: <laughs> the talking magic dog. But I mean actually though. <laughs> Cute Clifford. My god. He is kinda like Clifford, right? I'm excited it's for coming. that movie. I actually really want to see wait. that. <laughs> oh. well, we'll stream it
0: in the Discord. <laughs> my
1: god, yes. But actually though, I think that's a great point. Uh I mean there's a reason why all this magic stuff's happening and like that's really punctuated by like, oh, interesting, the herald in the sky, that comet. But They make camp that night, and Brienne comes to her, asking for leave to go. Catelyn thinks she shouldn't be surprised. Brienne had kept to herself, spending most of the time with her horses, helping Shad cook, cleaning game, proving that she could hunt as well as them. Honestly, Brienne's just perfect, apparently. She's amazing at everything. Like, any task that Catelyn asked of her, Brienne performed well and without complaint. And when spoken to, she answered politely. But... Uh, she never chattered their weapon laughed, and she rode with them every day and slept among them without ever, as it says, truly becoming one of them. And turns out it, it was much the same as when she was with Renly's camp, in the melee in his pavilion, and at the feast, being so far apart. And then Catelyn thinks, there are walls around this one higher than Winterfell's <laughs> tears for Brienne.
0: My heart breaks when I read that. It really does. It's so distressing. It's so distressing. I'm so distressed. I'm heartbroken right now. I've decided here on out that I've adopted Brienne and I will be taking care of everything for her. Anything she needs, I will do it for her. We will take care of her. She is our child now. She is our child. You can see why Catelyn wants to keep Brienne around her. Uh, Brienne and her share that kind of similar loneliness of being... You know, growing up in this institution that doesn't value them for who they actually are and values them as a currency. She Mm -hmm. never chattered, nor wept, nor laughed. She rode with them without ever truly becoming one of them. Is that not how Catelyn feels in the North, right? A stranger after all these years, right, in her own sept and area. Brienne conforming to duty and having to still somewhat, even if she is a knight, she's still conforming to some of these systems that are kind of propagating this behavior that isn't good and here today in in this chapter she sees a different way too brienne sees different uh the riverlands people and the northerners they don't necessarily operate like the men at bitterbridge were operating uh and i don't know it's interesting that she has this quiet path of vengeance to start when she actually does go on to defend people and help others trying to fulfill her oath and her vow as you know like protecting and defending the weak and it's just so interesting that she never chattered wept and laughed becomes more and more true for catalin in opposite right catalin is the one who ends up choosing this path of vengeance where Brienne takes it and kind of goes the opposite way and catalin becomes a tired a silent woman so to speak after this
1: Interesting. That is a great way that their paths intersect and their character development intersects. Um, Especially because I feel like we see Brienne start opening up more, right, in this chapter, whereas, Mm -hmm. as you point out, Catelyn closes more.
0: Yeah, she closes down more after this. uh, And she quits trusting more and more. And Brienne does quit trusting, though, too, to be fair. But at the same time, like just when she thinks that she's quit it all and quit that feeling, she goes out for those children, you know? So, I don't know. Brianna, I think, is made of just a little different zest of life at that point. Catalin has been in it a little longer, right? She's just been tossed around by the system a little longer. And it's interesting because Catalin's not the only redheaded highborn lady I think of when I think about this passage here. It actually makes me think of someone that you and I talked about recently with our friend Sergio Buckley over from the Isle of Faces podcast when we talked about the Sworn Sword. Someday we'll talk about these parallels way more in full whenever we cover Brienne in the Wayway way future. future, uh, but we we did talk about this when we covered the Sworn Sword. It's pretty commonly theorized Brienne shares some sort of, uh, of parental bloodline from Rohan and Dunk's line, possibly. Uh, maybe even sharing a grandparent from Rowan and Dunk's line, Rowan Weber, hmm. or in relation to Dunk. So canonically, her and Jamie are allowed to fuck because of that incest is what I'm saying. That's what gets Jamie going. Just kidding. If they share a grandparent, if they're cousins, that's what gets Jamie going. Doesn't anyone think about that? Just me. Some like Arrested Development shit. <laughs> it is. Uh I don't know. Even besides that, they're freckled heiresses with like dying and failed romances at their claim, right? And even we're before Jamie right now, BJ, so to say, so what? affectionately. We're BJ, <laughs> but right oh now, before God. Jamie. Uh,
1: <laughs> don't start. What if, with I, what if I fired?
0: What if I fired Chloe? <laughs> don't start with me, three on. Okay, what is this? Too fast, too furious. Anyways.
1: Oh. <sighs>
0: We're BJ before Jamie with Brienne, and technically Renly is Egg's great grandson, right? Hmm. So what I'm saying is Brienne's into that that little silver line happening in their golden line. She she's got a anyways something something in the actual lines though. Here the passage going on, especially with these walls up around Brienne, reminds me of Rowan Webber in Coldmoat. Sir Duncan, Lady Rowan said. I was ten years old when the black dragon rose. I begged my father not to put himself at risk, or at least to leave my husband, who would protect me if both my men were gone. So he took me up onto the ramparts and pointed out Cold Moat's strong points. Keep them strong, he said, and they will keep you safe. If you see to your defenses, no man may do you harm. The first thing he pointed at was the moat. Later, Rowan says, I no longer trust in men, no matter how ample they may seem. I trust in stone and steel and water. I trust in moats, sir, and mine will not go dry. Uh, It feels so representative of Brienne's beliefs at this point and also of Catelyn's, right? Mm. And her father who took her up on the battlements at River Run to show her the way of the world worked, the Mufasa and Simba scene, right? Everything the light touches uh, feels really indicative of their characters.
1: Yeah, as opposed to Renly's Mufasa scene.
0: Mufasa.
1: But yeah, I uh, I like that the tying of like how, you know, the systems and everything kind of like fails women, and they're like, well, I just don't trust anyone anymore because how can I? Yeah. Well, Catelyn asks, "All right, Brienne, where should you go?" And Brienne says, "Back to Storm's End." And Catelyn's like alone. And Brienne confirms that, and then adds, to kill Stannis. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, she's going to put it out there. And Brienne says she swore a vow three
0: times. She swore, as we discussed last episode. I said what I fucking said, Catelyn, and I meant it, she said. <laughs> yeah, she did. I mean, uh, she kind of does
1: come at it with that
0: energy. And good for her. You know what? That's uh, not a lot of other people in Westeros can say that. Yeah. We get these parts right here, these couple bits in passage. Um... First thing I want to call out, Brienne closed her thick, calloused fingers around the hilt of her sword, the sword that had been his. After last week's episode, I did go reread a couple of Brienne chapters and Jamie chapters, and her sword does get lost to the Mummers when they come upon the Mummers. So that is where Renly's sword goes. I figured it out. We did it. We're all good. We can move on with our lives. Uh, the second call out I have is This bit of passage that Catalan thinks. The girl had kept the rainbow cloak when she discarded the rest of her bloodstained clothing, she knew. Brienne's own things had been left behind during their flight, and she had been forced to clothe herself in odd bits of Sir Wendell's spare garb since no one else in their party had garments large enough to fit her. First of all, horrible. I feel so awful for Brienne having to be stuck in Wendell Manderly's clothing and having to, like, be a person of honor and like dress appropriately at this new court where you're just a stranger and you feel like shit and you just want to go home and you have to wear Wendell Manderley's clothing. It's very kind that he had clothing that could somewhat fit her, but it's just, it feels awful. I'm well, sorry, Brianne.
1: I mean, it does. But at the same time for me, I'm like, damn, what a Chad, like good for her. She's so swole. Like when I read that, I was like, oh my God, she's amazing. Like,
0: if you yeah. think about
1: it, like she's so strong. And I know that I mean, it's its not literally like,
0: that video of the person breaking the watermelon with her thighs.
1: Oh, that too. I—I'm just thinking of the little Doge meme. You know, like the Chad Doge. That's Brienne. Mm-hmm. I'm the sad little yeah. small one on the side, and I'm like, oh my god. I think it's impressive that, like, Wendell's is the only one that fits her. I know, like, that's not what it's saying, but I think it's impressive. I mean, everyone
0: else is different shaped. (laughs) The other call-out I have that's, like, not just about Wendell's clothing is, (laughs) does this not remind you of someone else who was witness-slash-kind-of-implicated in a murder that fled and kept a certain blood-stained Kingsguard cloak in the bottom of her summer chests? Why she kept the cloak, she could not say.
1: Who could you possibly mean? (laughs) Who could it be? Beauty
0: and the Beast.
1: That's also Brienne's story, though. Uh No, it's true. Ever just the same.
0: It's Mm -hmm. not a surprise
1: what Chloe is talking about here. Peewee and the
0: bees. <laughs> She's not gonna say, it. She's gonna say it. That was it. Y'all know. Y'all know. Leave no. me alone. I'm not gonna change. I feel like you know what, it has been a couple years, so maybe I should reiterate If you wanted me to be a different person, maybe write your books differently, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Okay. So Catelyn says vows <laughs> okay. should be kept, but Stannis has a great host f- around him, and his own guards are sworn to keep him safe.
1: So I thought that Catelyn stressing that vows ought to be kept was very interesting, considering that Catelyn later does not end up keeping her vows as Lady Stoneheart. Uh But hey, I will say maybe that's a question for learned hands sometime. <laughs> are the vows that Catelyn made to Brienne still binding? When Catelyn is now Lady Stoneheart, or are they not? It's a thought. Anyways, Catelyn does break hers. All right, partially because she thinks that Brienne has broken Brienne's vows, but it also makes me think of something that you were talking about in the previous, in the other episode. Maybe, maybe it was the last one um, that Brienne might break that vow about killing Stannis.
0: Yeah, I- I've thought about that a lot more since last week, and. I think there's like a lesson of mercy in here, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it's the lesson of mercy that Brienne will learn from Stoneheart, I'd guess. However, that lesson shapes up. But I just, in thinking about how Sandor and Mercy and Arya and Mercy and Sansa and Mercy, how these themes kind of circulate in their plots, I think it is very prevalent in Brienne's plot, especially regarding what she learns from Stoneheart and Especially when you think about like in just a little bit, Jamie gets spoken about of by Brienne as a murderer who killed a rightful king. Yeah. But later in the story, she changes her tune on what a rightful king means to her, as well as Jamie being a murderer. She learns the truth of who Ares was and who Jamie is. And I think that causes her to let go of her vengeance for Stannis, maybe somehow, some way, that she will have learned a better way. Especially with the effect of Jamie on her and what she learns from her relationship to him through the story and where it takes them. Uh, I wonder if she learns a better way because of these experiences and confrontations.
1: Well, it also, you know, tying it back to something you just brought up where you were semi-joking, but not really. Of, um, you know, parallels between Brienne and Sandor, who is likely also her relative, Mm -hmm. right, through Duncan the Tall. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: God, Dunk fucked.
1: Yeah, dude. For real. too dunked. fucked. fucked. Um, but in terms of, you know, you were saying, you know, she might learn a better way while people being taught a better way, right? Like, Sandor, Mm -hmm. very well, might be also letting go of his desire for vengeance against his older brother. So it'd be interesting to see how maybe both of these descendants, these dunk descendants. um... Come at it, right? Like in their different ways of oh, wow. how they learn to be like, whoa, but what if we didn't vengeance?
0: Oh my god, are they dunk variants? Is this <laughs> local <laughs> on variants. Disney Plus? Is These it? are dunk variants. Are you wow. saying that
1: Brienne and uh Sandor are gonna fall in love?
0: No me gusta. <laughs> You're like, I regret this. I regret this. <laughs> Why do you always take it there, Stanley ass motherfucker? Well, okay, well, this is what <sighs> happened, alright?
1: I've uh, seen a little. Um, anyways. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk. Brienne is not afraid of the guards and says she never should have fled, and Catelyn <laughs> sighs, asking her if that's what troubles her, being a craven. She tells Brienne that Rentley was no fault of hers and she served him valiantly.
0: Catelyn says to Brienne, I love this. When you seek to follow him in the earth, you serve no one. She stretched out a hand to give what comfort a touch could give. Which, very sad and very sweet. The cat is trying to empathize with her. And this is just like your monthly reminder to listen to Good by the Manimals from their Game of Thrones concept album called Seven. It's a very good song. And there's this lyric in the chorus. It's like, Mailed fist, reaching out to touch someone. Not enough daughter. Not enough son. I'm going to make good on my promises. So good. Literally good. It's literally called good. It's my daughter. Well, Catalan tries to empathize with Brienne, but Brienne shakes off her hand and she's like, no one knows. And Catalan sharply corrects her and she's like, bitch, if anyone knows, it is me. And she says, every morning when I wake, I remember Ned is gone. I have no skill with swords, but that does not mean I do not dream of riding to King's Landing and wrapping my hands around Cersei Lannister's white throat and squeezing until her face turns black. Now, I have to say this doesn't really work right for the Valin Cat theory because Cat is an older sister. I don't she think is. it works as far as the Valon Cat prophecy goes.
1: Mm-mm. She's definitely going to be Ser Pounce sister.
0: after all. Maybe lady whiskers. Maybe boots. Boots!
1: People were thrown off by that question in trivia. That
0: was the only one I fucking knew.
1: Really?
0: (laughs) I love a fucking cat. I motherfucking love a cat.
1: Um, Well, regarding this cat... um, (laughs) Out of the bag. As the Lannisters start, you know, regaining power, right? um, Just a little bit in this chapter. Not entirely, but, you know, like... Yeah, they, like, lose one more contestant against them when Renly dies. So that's, like, kind of good for them. Um, And as Catelyn has more time to really just, like, sit more with her grief, but also learning of, like, oh, so the Lannister incest is the thing and maybe that's why my son is injured, huh? And now that she's, like, in front of Brienne, who is another, like, outcast when it comes to Robb's host because of their gender, uh, Catelyn starts moving away. From her pleas for peace and these internal questions of whether actions will bring that back to her and we're going to come back to this a couple of times throughout this chapter because i think it's really important to this one like in front of brienne with whom cat has just like experienced this really traumatic event of horrible witchcraft and, like, first-hand witness now, like, these are what the stakes are for my son. This is what it means. And, you know, she's gone through this again before, right? When she, like, in that, when it comes to Brandon, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And after having, like, lost her husband now and is about to visit her, like, soon-to-be-gone father, Catelyn really begins to undergo a change, especially in terms of, like, what does she want now? And, like, she stops wondering about those practical outcomes, right? Like... Before, she's like the one who questioned the, oh, why do these kings always want to give me Lannister heads, right? Why is this always the first (laughs) thing that they want to give me? And, like, it's dumb. Like, finally, she admits that maybe, just maybe, she also wants those Lannister heads. But it's more than just wanting, like, those heads on a plate, Right. She wants to be the one to administer that vengeance. She doesn't want someone else to do it mm-hmm. for her because that's just such a visceral image that we get here. Here, when she's talking about wanting herself to wrap her hands around Cersei's throat and like that change from like Cersei's throat and face being white to black, like that's so visual. You can tell she's like actually fantasized about this, and like it feels really pointed that as she and Brienne are the ones, you know. In this chapter a little later they're passing the hanged bodies of Lannisters, right? Her fear is initially more towards whether or not Jamie has died, uh, which would mean her daughter's lives, right? And she is a little like, wait, you hung envoys? Like there's a slight hesitation there when she finds out. But when she initially sees those hanged Lannisters, um, Catelyn observes Brienne's very reserved reaction in comparison to like the really obvious celebration of the their companions. Which, mm-hmm. of course, insinuates that maybe Brienne doesn't really approve of what's going on here, but Catelyn's own judgment of what happened here isn't really given, right? It it, it could be that she's observing Brienne's reaction and we as a reader are supposed to interpret like that and Catelyn's lack of dialogue to say that Catelyn feels the same, because she isn't really saying anything either. Mm-hmm. But that's, again, not a given, because I think... We're starting to see that maybe Catelyn's coming around to this a little more than she knows yet, and a little more than we think, with those obvious connections between these deaths, which are, of course, about closing in around the Neck, whether it's Cersei's own or the Lannister envoys, and, of course, like the obvious connections with Lady Stoneheart.
0: That's a great point. And not only that, but... Obviously, her humanity starts to be a little fleeting in some of Mm. how she regards, like, just these social issues going on. Uh, On one hand, she believes one thing. On the other hand, the duality of Catelyn Stark is that uh, she's shutting herself off to everything to stop from feeling the pain. And earlier you had mentioned, you know, that, that she's been suffering in this institution for so long and, like, that she's, like, had to sacrifice her happiness for so long and things that she wants or things that would make her happier for other men that need swords or you know for other mm-hmm. people and that builds up that's building it's like a pressure cooker right now and here it is happening every day all day long yeah it's very frustrating and it, it's very interesting she's just shutting herself off bit by bit
1: mm-hmm. Um, she, she is right and and towards more like I mean, tywin measures, you know? She doesn't mm-hmm. ever get to actual Tywin, right? She get, goes her own right. path, which is its own thing.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that Tywin knew well enough, too, that, like, I better end this before they start getting angrier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, I might be next. And then he was, haha, <laughs> <laughs> but it was <laughs> his son, haha. <laughs> 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 oh, well... <laughs> Brienne, who's somewhat surprised to hear this about Cersei from Catelyn, asks why she should seek to hold her back if that's what Catelyn dreams. Catelyn explains she was taught good men fight evil, and Renly's death was evil, but she also was taught that gods make kings, not the swords of men. Brienne disagrees. The rightful kings were killed in Robert's Rebellion, and the gods were absent. They don't care about men like kings don't care for peasants. (sighs) Ah. Damn, mm-hmm. after you see your first king love die, you get real cynical real fast, you know?
1: For yeah. someone who
0: was like, just a couple chapters ago, was like, what's up? Summer is our glory. <laughs> Brienne is really struggling. It's hard. Everything that she knows and believed in has been turned on its head or killed by a shadow baby. And I think this is a great place for her arc in time with Jamie, right? Because here, this is that moment I mentioned earlier. She's operating under the idea, Jamie murdered the king, the rightful king. So yeah. in the future here, in this clash arc of the next few chapters.
1: It is really interesting. And I mean, I bet she had a lot of time to think during that one month journey of like, oh my God, what does it all mean? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine
0: our poor baby just be like,
1: what does it all mean?
0: <laughs> but can't believe you let her go on that trip. Oh my I told you we shouldn't have let her go on that trip. Our daughter, Brienne. We
1: shouldn't. We shouldn't. So we need towards. to be better parents. What, is, what have I done? Um, <laughs> but it, it is a really interesting discussion here, actually. Like, Everything that transpires between Catelyn and Brienne here, to be honest, but, like, right here, these, like, questions that they ask each other about kingship says a lot about both of their political perspectives. And and it is very much, like, a political discussion in which Brienne is challenging Cat's belief, specifically in the divine right of kings. And though it goes unsaid in this discussion, the subtext is there of the contradictory nature, then, of Cat's current political beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Because Kat's religious nature has established for her, like, for a long time since girlhood, even, even going to the north, right? That the gods are real. The faith of the seven, it's real. And with them comes a moral code of conduct that is external from people, right? It's about good and evil. And that good people must follow these codes, uh, to eradicate evil. And it is a fixed, moral code. It's, again, determined externally of human circumstances by the gods, and that within this, therefore, the assassination of Renly is clearly evil. Which it probably was. Um, and because of Cat's faith in the Seven, she believes in the divine right of kings, that the gods have predetermined and given their will as to whoever is next in the monarchy's line, which here would be, I guess, Stannis Baratheon if the Baratheon bastards are, in fact, not Baratheons, which they are not. And Catelyn is now about to, like, before she gets interrupted for a second, she's about to run up against a moral quandary, one that interestingly, I say, resurfaces in her final Clash chapter, in her discussion with Jaime Lannister, as you were discussing, where she will have to wrestle with if the king has the divine right to rule from the gods who dictate what is good and what is evil, then is Stannis' act of Renly... Not immoral, is it? Not evil, then? Perhaps is it even good if he is the conduit, right? If he is chosen by the will of the gods and it flows through him. So there's something of a paradox that she's gonna have to wrestle with at some point, but she won't because she dies. Um, but before <laughs> we get to that question, before Kat has to really like cross that like bridge and like think about this like theological question, um, Brienne interrupts with what is interestingly, actually probably and Selmy's own thought process in terms of like, so who's the rightful king and who should I go to now? Um, Where should I go get a job now? Uh, But Brienne doesn't come to the same conclusions and doesn't make the same decisions as and Selmy. Because as we find out, despite how much like Brienne invests in like all of these other codes, she doesn't seem to give a shit about the divine right of kings. That's not important to her, which is really fascinating because she puts stock in vows and legends and knighthood, interwoven with the faith of the seven. But perhaps because Brienne is as as Low is pointed out in their essay, um, a gender outlaw, an outcast, there is no caste for Brienne. Right, Brienne takes a much more existential view of. Uh, Westerosi politics, which makes sense, again, considering her inability to conform to Westeros's gender rules. I mean, Brienne's basically performing knighthood without being a knight, like, who gives a fuck mm-hmm. about the rules, right? Mm-hmm. And she points out that the rightful kings are not the Baratheons, and she's like, in fact, actually, Renly told me that Robert isn't the rightful king. So she knows that Renly was like, it's probably all bullshit. And that puts in a point of comparison between her and Barristan once more, which, again, seems to follow this reasoning and flees across the sea. And maybe this could be considered foreshadowing or like a clue for the arson reveal. Um, but also, as Brienne points out, Jamie killed the last, in quotes, rightful king. And we learn from Jamie in that last chapter of Catelyn's this book that Ares might have been, like, the rightful king, but he was not righteous. And Sobrien asks also, well, when all this happened, where were the fucking gods, alright? Where were they? (laughs) And I think there's something to be said of us knowing that Ares was horrific, and also returned to Catelyn's, like, earlier ponderings of the Targaryens being beholden to neither the gods nor men, right? Especially in their practice of incest. It's like that clash Mm -hmm. between the religious powers of Westeros and the royals, and you can read more about it in Fire and Blood, so, like, Could just do that. Um, But Brienne clearly, again, does not give a shit. And she says it pretty much explicitly right here, right? And it's no wonder she ends up here at the northern camp, where these houses, like her, they've just determined who they're going to choose as their own king, right? She believes, to some extent, maybe not swords don't determine who a king is, but we're who you want, men or yourself. You get to decide what you believe and who you want to follow, which again is another reminder of Aries' riddle, which I'm gonna like bring up every Cat chapter or every Clash episode. I don't know. But we never actually have to see Cat really reconcile that political argument because there is a question then. Does she believe that Rob now has the divine right to rule? Does she not believe then in the legitimacy of her son's claim in kingship if this is her stance? Because she doesn't bring Rob up in the, what she's saying here when she's talking to Brienne mm-hmm. um, earlier in that earlier question. And so Kat has to probably like be reconciling these religious contradictions like her whole life and isn't voicing this really huge one mm-hmm. with a son who does not follow the faith of the seven, who will rule a people of whom a large population, probably the majority of them, follow the old gods. And so... And Kat had to like reconcile this within herself when she had to believe like, okay, I guess my friend Robert now has the divine right, Uh, which Brienne points out like, did he though? Did he though? And that even Brienne doesn't believe Renly had the divine right. She just believed in Renly. And that's, that's powerful, right? And I think Kat and Brienne are the same here, though Kat doesn't know it yet, because Kat has also chosen her own king and gone against her faith. Even if perhaps her son Mm -hmm. was chosen by the old gods, maybe in a roundabout way, as she thinks like a few pages ago, she's like, it is interesting, right? That those direwolves maybe were chosen by the old gods? Interesting. But she was there. And it's clear that on this plane, without the martial force of something like dragons or like shadow babies, there's something to be said of the will and political power of like the ruled to determine their own leader. And she agrees with Brienne in a moment that, you know, maybe the social contract between a king and vassals does matter, not just divine will
0: yeah it's so interesting again that duality of cat that she can't quite say out loud that it it's just total and blatant like hypocrisy yeah. that she's been forced to live within, and like literally her son being king goes against everything she was raised and told to believe and told to do, and that is something she's going to battle and never going to come to terms with, like you said. And I do respect that Catelyn argues a good king would care about all of this uh-huh. next. And Brienne's like, well, Renly would have been that king. And Cat's like, well, he's gone, sister. And Stannis, Joffrey, and my son remain. She finally brings Rob into the equation. And uh-huh. of those uh, out of three there, yeah, he, he is the better person. Absolutely. I can agree there. <laughs> not yeah. Not really big winners, you know, going on.
1: There's not a lot, of, as you said. There, well, there's actually technically bale but they don't know that yet. Uh,
0: not helping the cause, Eliana. You're not helping you're, the cause. You're, you're right. just you're just Rob splitting up the ticket the best. even further. Okay, Ron is still the best you're just choice. trying to make distractions. This is oh an God. astroturfing grassroots oh. campaign to distract from the real kings. Uh, <laughs> Brienne asks, horrified, if Catelyn would make a peace with Stannis and bend the knee to him. And she says, honestly, I don't know anymore, Brienne. I'm not a queen. I'm just a mother who wants to keep my children safe. Brienne says, I'm not made to be a mother, and I need to fight. Catelyn tells her to fight, but fight for the living, not the dead. Renly's enemies are Rob's as well, she says. What a crucial moment between these two women in conversation for Brienne moving forward, something she keeps in her mind. Something that really reverses what she thought she wanted when she's on the road. Protecting and defending the innocent and weak becomes something that she embodies better than most other POVs. And something, actually, that gets taken advantage via through her, very often throughout the story. I can see where this idea, fighting for the living, not for the dead, will become so imperative in her fight against the others and the fight for the dawn later. Let alone in her love life.
1: The big story. The more important story. I mean, Jamie...
0: Not fighting for that idea, that living love, mm, you know, and choosing yeah. a dead, toxic love.
1: Hmm. Yeah, love triangles, um,
0: telenovelas.
1: It actually kind of is, though. Um, <laughs> soap operas are a little, a little bit of George R. R. Martin start, but um, I mean, what you said is absolutely it. Uh, it's interesting, right, that Catelyn's plea here. You know, you're talking about the battle for the dawn, um. It's kind of reminiscent of Jon Snow's own pleas to pretty much everyone.
0: <sighs> yeah, pretty much anyone that'll listen to it. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: Everyone. As he reminds them, remember how you hate all the people I'm making you work with? Also, <laughs> fight for the living.
0: <laughs> also, Not fight the all the zombies. Yes. Also, be happy about it at the same time. Do it with a smile.
1: Fight every battle oh. in your head. Wait, no, wrong person.
0: At all times. Wait.
1: I do not know your son, my lady. I could serve you, if you would have me. Why me? The question seemed to trouble Brienne. You helped me, in the pavilion, when they thought that I had- that I had-
0: You were innocent. Even so, you
1: did not have to do that. You could have let them kill me. I was nothing to you.
0: Perhaps I did not want to be the only one who knew the dark truth of what had happened there, Catelyn thought. Brienne, I have taken many well-born ladies into my service over the years, but never one like you. I am no battle commander.
1: No, but you have courage. Not battle courage, perhaps, but... I don't know. A kind of woman's courage. And I think when the time comes, you will not try and hold me back. Promise me that, that you will not hold me back from
0: Stannis. Catelyn could still hear Stannis saying, "Rob's turn too would come in time." It was like a cold breath on the back of her neck. When the time comes, I will not hold you back.
1: The tall girl knelt awkwardly, unsheathed Renly's long sword, and laid it at her feet. Then I am yours, my lady, your liegeman or. Whatever you would have me be, I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it, by the old gods and the new.
0: And I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth, and meat and mead at my table, and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonor. I swear it by the old gods and the new. Arise. As she clasped the other woman's hands between her own, Catelyn could not help but smile. How many times did I watch Ned accept a man's oath of service? She wondered what he would think if he could see her now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my Everything about this scene is so emotional.
0: Oh, my parents. And my baby. Oh, I am my daughter. It's just so much. It is so beautiful. Wow, so much popping out at me this time. First thing that pops out, no service of you that might bring you into dishonor. Oh, like bringing the Kingslayer and getting him out of here?
1: Or telling you you to choose between that. Yeah, choosing her to choose between that or killing the little boy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know what, Catelyn, listen... You broke that shit right at the start, so I don't think, you know, the, the whole idea of, like, who broke the vow when, obviously it doesn't matter because she's a fucking zombie now, but... Is it uh,
1: a finding? I don't know. Learn like,
0: hands. I don't think it fucking matters when you have a zombie <laughs> robot mom killing machine on the loose, but I do think <laughs> a very charismatic zombie robot mom, now That's that I mentioned that. God, That's how does true. she get all those guys to do shit for her, even now? even while still her skin like, looks she curdled. She might
1: still be hot? <laughs>
0: um, you know, girls in the North are that scarce. There aren't that many women in the North anymore, is what they're trying to say. No, I'm this just the
1: Riverlands now, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Those bitches are dead. Well, however they get out of their Stoneheart meetup, that does feel significant. She already broke that shit. I do have to say, I love her being proud of herself, wishing Ned could see her doing this. And proud of how he would inspire that same loyalty and that now she can herself. It's also very sad because it wouldn't have happened if he were alive, you know? So it's like now out of necessity, she has had to do that. I know we've spoken so much in the past, far too much, about Sansa likely having a scene that echoes Catelyn at the end of the crossroads, but in the Mm Vale. However, I also think this will come back, right? I think Sansa will likely have a scene doing just this, taking Brienne, swearing her into her service. And I think it will be in a similar manner, that Sansa is not necessarily in charge of things. John might be king at this time, and Sansa is secondary, uh. because that is something very distinct here, that Brienne says, I don't know your son, but I do know you, and your courage is inspiring, and I would like to pledge my sword to you. Um, I think that's just such, it feels like a strong element about it, especially in the face of stark civil war, which isn't going to be a thing. Uh, but, you know, the the tensions, the rising tensions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, very Jonquil dark, right? The serpent and scarlet for Alicent Targaryen.
1: Yes. Absolutely. This is probably
0: the closest we've even come to, like, seeing a knighting, right? Uh, Davos gets tapped for his lordship, but not quite the same. Uh, we We have seen... Very briefly, the knighting going on in King's Landing after the Blackwater that they were uh, sans mentions They have to walk barefoot through the city as part of their devotionals as they take their vows. Otherwise, the closest thing we've seen is in the Hedge Knight with the Green Apple Fossaway, right? Uh, getting knighted right before the battle. Mm. And it makes me think George is priming us for fulfilling that knighting aspect in the future through Brienne's POV, right? Priming that moment because we haven't seen a ceremony in full of someone becoming a knight and that's probably our most likely
1: absolutely oh, i love the oh, green it's gonna be crossways so oh i'm sorry i'm just like thinking about brian getting knighted getting teary i know right <gasps> that's not me
0: <sighs> in the name of the warrior i charge you to be brave in the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I say you're my daughter, Brianna of time. <laughs> I'm the mother now. I'm the mother. Look at me. I'm the mother.
1: Oh, God. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to that one day. You know, look under your chair, but one day. wow T-wow.
0: T-wow.
1: It's been like, what? It wasn't the anniversary of A Dance of Dragons?
0: Shut the fuck up, Eliana. I, We're not talking uh, about that anymore. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, anyway, so I will say I love seeing Brienne's influence on Catelyn here because I think Brienne yes. does have quite an influence on Catelyn's character. Like, you know, in many ways, yeah, Brienne is young and is portrayed as naive and kind of interpreted as such um, often because of, in some ways, you know, Brienne does have a lot of optimism, right? In that is part of her strengths and maybe part of what keeps her going later on. And she's got that belief in the chivalric code that Mm. she's not allowed to pledge. She's also got a lot of courage. Right. And she shows, I think some great wisdom in this entire exchange as she pushes back on Catelyn's beliefs of like, this is how things should be to her saying, well, this is how things could be Uh, as they both take part in these like really unorthodox vows. Brienne's like, who gives a shit, you know? And, It's interesting to think of Brienne being, like, the one who's like, who gives a shit about these rules, all right? And Brienne earlier is the one who teaches Catelyn that what is socially traditional in terms of those politics isn't always what's right, and that we must choose for ourselves what is right and what we want to believe in. And that's what Brienne does here, right? She's sticking consistently to those earlier beliefs. Earlier, she chose a king who unfortunately died uh, in her arms. It was very sad. And we also unfortunately don't get Brienne's POV during these parts. Because, like I said, during that one-month period, it sounds like she did a lot of soul-searching and thinking. It's probably like, what if I was wrong about the songs? <laughs> Yet she still like goes on a cheval request, anyways. But for this time right Brienne hasn't found a king that she's willing to fight for and she sticks by that she's like I don't know Rob I'm not willing to fight for his principles but she still fights for her beliefs and that's why she chooses Catelyn who you know interestingly at first doesn't agree to take Brienne's service but rather Brienne just goes ahead and she's like all right I'm gonna pledge anyway just make this promise me don't hold me back and Catelyn is like all right she accepts and makes a vow of her own to Brienne and you know perhaps it's cynical but is it because Brienne is afraid of, in, even though she likes choosing her beliefs, she's afraid to choose even more, like, her own path in her life, right? She wants someone to follow. Loris tells Jaime in A Storm of Swords that Renly had said of Brienne. I asked him why he kept her close, if he thought her so grotesque. He thought, he said that all his other knights wanted things of him, castles or honors or riches, but all that Brienne wanted was to die for him. So... Maybe, like, she hasn't progressed that much and is still, like, living within that chivalric romance, but has just, like, replaced Renly as someone to die for with Catelyn, because she's all like, you know what, I'll give my life for yours if need be. I'm like, oh, okay, word. All right, that was real fast. Um,
0: Is this intimacy and friendship? Maybe, that might be friendship. Is this what a female friendship is supposed to be? Maybe. I mean, I just talked to you weekly about this stupid book, but, like... Otherwise, am I supposed to die for you? Life is fine. I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope I hope not. Uh, That's good.
1: Well. <laughs> but what is interesting here is, like, what encourages Catelyn to enter this vow with Brienne? is she remembers Stannis' threat to Rob. Which, again, if you want to make friends and not enemies, don't threaten people's kids. Alright, it's a pretty simple rule. And it comes back to what Catelyn was saying earlier. Catelyn doesn't see herself as a queen, or else would this exchange be so meaningful? It's like, whatever, people pledge to queens all the fucking time, alright? Like, this vow takes place outside of those established rules of who makes vows to whom in westeros like that's what makes this meaningful and catelyn is a mother who wants to protect her children and she sees brienne as someone who's going to help her do that and yet of this vow catelyn swears before the old gods and the new which is you know part of the whole spiel you know we've all heard it all the time but when she says new we know what gods she's thinking of she's thinking of the faith of the seven but as brienne asked earlier in the deaths of the rightful king and his lawful heir Ares and rhaegar respectively like Where were the gods then? Okay, where the fuck were they? And where were the gods when the holy taboo of guest Right was broken and Catelyn and her son died? And which god brought her back, all right? It's a new one, a new god, but it's not the one that she swore in front of. So anyways, uh, Catelyn's views of society, like religion and kingship, all of of that's finally just broken in her death. And maybe it's cyclical, right? I wonder if it'll be cyclical with Brienne and um, her view of the world. I'm curious to see how witnessing the person that she opened up to in this way, right? She really does open up to Catelyn quite a bit here. How that's going to influence Brienne's development at some point. Obviously, we know know, Cat's not going to develop more because she's a zombie.
0: (laughs) Something's going to happen to her, all right. Decompose. Uh, When you mention that Cat does know she's not a queen. And it becomes very apparent that she gets tweeted treated more as a mother than even a queen mother after a bit of time here. And a lot of that comes up with the tensions of the Karstarks before the Jamie Lannister springing from jail thing. That doesn't help her case either. Uh, but I feel like those tensions are so obvious. And in this scene, in this moment, Catelyn feels more like a mother that's doing what little she can in her reach to protect her children in the way she can or protect mm-hmm. herself in the way she can. And it almost makes me see a little more sympathy and empathy for Alicent Hightower, for example, from The Dance of the Dragons, you know, someone hmm. who comes into this marriage with no dragon blood, no dragons, but is expected to just like bear these kings and queens, or now she's expected to have kings and queens from her line and know the whole rule book. And the rule book it turns out is changing every fucking moment for Catalyn. Every moment.
1: It is. It really is. She's always, and as you see, it's almost like she's a few steps behind because she didn't even know what was happening at Oxcross.
0: Yeah, now she's really behind.
1: Yeah. And when you think of that, it's also just like, you know, it's an interesting comparison with Cersei as well, right? Mm -hmm. Who very much is like, well, I mean, she was a queen, right? She was married to Robert, but.
0: Hey, recently she was put out of commission for a while too. That's true. That's true. They forward for the Red Fork the next day guarded by Malister archers and pikemen. When they see Catelyn's banners, they send men to lead her party across the water. They explain they had planted iron spikes and caltrops in the water by Edmir's command. She realizes that Edmir means to fight here and gets queasy, but she holds her tongue. They join a stream of small folk making for river run, animals before them, or pulling wains. They make way as Catelyn rides past, cheering her but "Tolly Stark! Half a mile from the castle, she passes a Blackwood encampment. Lucas, Blackwood, takes his leave to seek Lord Tytos and the rest ride on. They see a second camp with Piper, Derry, and Page banners, her father's bannermen. Edmure had called them back to the fight. God save us, it's true. He means to offer battle to Lord Tywin. This does seem to be such an ultimate fear lurking in this chapter. Tywin, for Catelyn. Uh-huh. She wants more than anything to avoid conflict with him. The stranger has transformed into Tywin here, right? She uh-huh. thinks they will lose. It does feel like there are some nice dark parallels to the end of Arya's chapter, when Arya, of course, gives Whis' name to Jacques and Hagar, and she feels regret at that. These were the men who mattered. The ones she ought to have killed. Last night, she could have whispered any of them dead. If only she hadn't been so mad at Weiss for hitting her and lying about the cabin. Lord Tywin. Why didn't I say Lord Tywin? Instead, Arya watches helplessly as Weiss is the man killed by a shadow like Catelyn watched last chapter as the shadow decided on Renly. But of course Catelyn had less choice in that matter, not Arya.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's a, that's interesting, you know. It's also very much... You're right. It, it's a lot of great parallels between them. Of like, ah, oh, wish I could reach this person, and kill them instead, and goddamn it. <laughs> but you know, Arya, you made that decision because the plot needed you to. Sucks. Yeah,
0: it's not her fault. It's not her fault. <laughs>
1: it's not your fault.
0: Also, it's um, like a kid. You know, you give a kid like three wishes. Come on.
1: Yeah, it's the immediate desire for for that. Um. But also it makes sense for Tywin to be their big fear, right? Like, I mean, he was the one that they were like, oh, that guy fucked up the last king in a way, too. Betrayed him. So. From a distance, Catelyn sees something dangle from Riverend's walls. Closer she sees, oh, it's dead men slumped on long ropes, crimson cloaks bright. The men just laugh cheerfully, all except for Brienne, who is gazing up, unblinking, unsmiling, and silent. Again, that line from Catelyn If they have slayed the Kingslayer, then my daughters are dead as well. Catelyn's burger, horse to a cancer.
0: I'm definitely reminded, now that you talked about this already with the hangings and being related kind of to Stoneheart's later character, uh, something about the Lannister envoys being hanged, you know, reminds me a lot of the plot with the Karstarks that we still have to come. We haven't even done that yet. That is coming. So so it's. It's definitely the big foreshadowing, definitely the harsh stuff going on, definitely a dark day to come, and it Mm -hmm. is definitely foreshadowed here with hanging envoys. Absolutely. The men in the guard race to the gatehouse, and Edmure rides to meet Kat, surrounded by her father's men, Desmond Grell, master-at-arms, Eutherides Wayne, the steward, and Robin Rygar, captain of guards. They spent their life in his service, and she realizes for the first time that these men are now old in front of her eyes, and that is a very, I, I've, I understand this feeling. I know not a cast, uh focused a lot on this part in their coverage, and it's just such a sad line, you know, once youthful, but now here they are, old, tired men fighting for their lives, their homes, their people, and, and for the first time she sees them that way. She doesn't remember them that way. She remembers them youthful with her father fighting and fucking and drinking, you know?
1: Yeah, Ugh. absolutely.
0: Edmir is dressed in a red and blue cloak over a silver fish embroidered tunic, very sharp, but his beard is crazy bushy and red. It's out of control. I'm happy for him. I'm I so am happy too. for him. Movember. <laughs> they feared for Kat when they had heard of Renly's death, and Kat brushes it off and says she's more concerned for her father. This is definitely, a. it reminds me a bit of the beginning of Danny's next chapter, when she comes back from trying to work with the pureborn in Carth, and it, it turns out it was a useless visit, right? She comes back with nothing to show for an alliance between them, much like Catelyn right now with the men via Renly and Stannis. Mm-hmm. And the conversation between Danny and Zaro goes, they said no. They said it with great courtesy, to be sure, but under all the lovely words, it was still no. Did you flatter them? Shamelessly. Did you weep? The blood of the dragon does not weep, she said testily. Zaro sighed. You ought to have wept. ah, Catalin ought to have wept, I suppose. Truly a lot of the centrist, like luxury ridden bullshit that Zaro is spewing at Danny in this next chapter does also feel very reminiscent of Renly, right beneath his silk and green pavilion as Zaro hands Danny fruits and pomegranates and silks and jewels. Feels That's very such a similar. Great
1: comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, like, there's there's a similar subtext, too, about, you know, both sorrow right? And uh, mm-hmm. and Renly, of course, both being gay. So, interesting. Hmm. I don't know what George Watch out, saying,
0: Zaro. Watch out for a giant shadow over top of you, Zaro, Zoendoxus.
1: Yeah. Who is still alive in the books. Reminder.
0: Yeah. And again, like I said, watch out for those flapping wings, because they could be above you at any moment, buddy. Any moment.
1: Any moment in the winds of winter. (laughs)
0: Look
1: under your chair. (laughs) Look up, look up. You are the chair. Homester had asked for Kat. Um, He's been growing weaker. She vows to go visit him soon and asks if they had any word from Storm's End or Bitterbridge since Renly's death. And nothing had come from Bitterbridge, but three birds had come from Courtney Penrose at Storm's End. Stannis has him surrounded by Siege, and he will offer his loyalty to whichever king frees him. He fears for the boy, as he should. When no one knows who the boy is, Brienne says, Edric Storm, Robert's bastard. Stannis swore the garrison could be free if they yielded the castle and the boy, but Courtney will not consent. He risks all for a base-born boy, whose blood is not even his own, Catelyn thought.
0: Subtextually not saying her husband's name. Thinking about John Snow yep. again for the eightieth time this chapter.
1: Yep, pretty much. Yep, we're thinking about John and Ned. Yep.
0: Yep. Yep. She yep. doesn't know though. She doesn't know. She's Catelyn like huh. doesn't know. Push it down. Yep. Absolutely. At this point, if she doesn't know, she's not gonna. Robin Riger asks how Renly died, claiming they had heard some queer tales, and Edmure cuts to the chase, and he's like, everyone's saying you killed Renly, sis, or some queer southern woman did it, and Brienne speaks up, and she's like, uh, Catelyn's innocent by the gods and by my sword, I swear it, and Catalan's like, oh, this is Brienne, word, and she actually goes around introducing her to each man at the table individually, which is really great. She doesn't, like, just leave it awkward. Like, yeah, this is my friend from work, Brienne. You know how some people do that, and you're like, any any help here what your name is? No? Okay. I, Catelyn yeah, that's hooks me sometimes,
1: up. But I'm just not, like, socially graceful like Catelyn, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Catelyn is. She is diplomatic as fuck here, and each man tells her, oh, it's an honor, and they treat her with commonplace courtesy, and mm. Brienne blushes because of it. And I think this is just so sweet. Edmere is very sweet to her. And this is how these houses were raised, right? They were raised to treat everyone with this genuine courtesy, uh, not the overt, obvious, fake saccharine courtesy that she experienced in the reach and the performance in the games. This is the genuine, raw way that they were kind of brought up to treat them, to treat other nobles that they would work with and meet with.
1: I mean, absolutely. You know, as you said, the courtesy comes from like everyone at this table, and it comes back a little to what we were saying about how like Catelyn we see is treated with much more respect in the North than in than Renly's kingdom did, and also part of it is because like like you know this Brienne moment's like a little weird, but they're also like I don't know, they're kind of used to it, right? They got Daisy here, you have Mage over there, like laying waste to the Westerlands. They're like, yeah, okay, we've seen that before. But it also, to some extent, speaks to Catelyn's own influence and power uh, Mm -hmm. within the North. And I mean, in general, like, they likely view Brienne with a bit of curiosity again, but like, Catelyn also extends and uses her own social and political clout to normalize Brienne to the others, besides them, you know, being like mildly familiar with the concept of, yes, women warriors, of course. Yeah. Well, Catelyn tells them the truth. They were there. But they had no part in Renly's death, and she doesn't care to talk about the Shadow Babies, so she changes the subject to the men that Edmure has hanged.
0: She literally waves her hand as if to be like, love what you've done with the place. I really loved it. Um, Edmure explains these hanged men and that they had come as envoys with Sir Cleos, ate his food and meat for three days before trying to free the Kingslayer on the 4th. Feels like it could be foreshadowing for something, I'm just not sure. The biggest man had killed two guards with his hands, the skinny one had broken into the cell, and the one on the end was a mummer, using Edmure's own voice to command the river gate be opened. The guardsmen swear by that story. Edmure's like, I don't know. I don't think the man sounded like me. I heard him. Catelyn suspects Tyrion's cunning in this story. Once she would have named Tyrion the least dangerous of the Lannisters, but now she thinks she's not so sure. Edmure hadn't been in the castle when they had arrived, Catalin is like, you've been out whoring or wenching, get on with the tale. Ooh, kind of harsh. And when he did arrive, the men are dumbfounded at who they were taking commands from. They're like, wait, if you're not over there, who are we taking commands from, boss?
1: <sighs> yeah, and okay, so I have a hot take. I have a hot take. A lot of Cat's disdain All right, for Edmure is just slut-shaming. All right, here, in other chapters, she's just mad at Emyr because he fucks.
0: Yeah, I mean, she can't. All she wants to do right now is just take a nooner with Daddy Malister, have a day off, not think about anything, maybe get hers, you know? I don't know. Could be wild. Anyways. Blow her back out. No, it is, though. It is actually, like, I do think that it's absolutely very much based in... Like, the fact that she has let her womb quicken for swords and for capital in this race and has gotten nothing out of it, and he gets to just go off, doesn't have to marry right now, you know, he will eventually, obviously, in the events of the Red Wedding there, but uh hasn't been made to marry, you know, super yeah. young, hasn't been made to reproduce and make heirs. It's just good enough. It's whenever Admir gets around to it, you know, and now no one's going to make him.
1: That's true. Except for
0: her. And Rob, well,
1: and Rob and their uncle, when they all killed him But I mean,
0: before it. that exact moment, but he also takes that very easily. We'll talk about that soon. Yeah. Um, they had retaken the Kingslayer from this whole event. Not easily. Jamie had killed Paul Purford and Sir Desmond Squire and wounded another so badly he died too. He hanged those four through the rest in the dungeons. Jamie had been returned to a cell, bolted to the wall in the dark. Cleos is put back in Jaime's old tower cell, and he had actually brought terms, but Amirs like, they're not very good. You probably don't want to read them. <laughs> Eutherides Wayne says Tywin doesn't suffer the charge of incest lightly, and he'll be soon looking to wash the stain off of Cersei with the blood of her accuser. Stannis has no choice but to make common cause with Rob. he says.
1: Well, Calvin's like... They'll speak of these matters later and trots ahead over the drawbridge on her horse, her brother keeping pace, and Naked Toddler runs out in front of the horse, and Catelyn veers to miss it. She notices that there are small folk everywhere making shelter against the walls, children underfoot. Who are all these folk?
0: My people, Edmere answered. They were afraid.
1: Only my sweet brother would crowd all these useless mouths into a castle that might soon be under siege. Catelyn knew that Edmure had a soft heart. Sometimes she thought his head was even softer. She
0: loved him for it, yet still... <sighs> okay, I am going to argue that Edmure Defense Club, and there is a little hypocrisy here from Cat in in the, just her perspective on this. Edmure is making good decisions based on the information he had. Much like when Cat took Tyrion, right? That was yeah. information she had, and she based her decision on that. Rob and the Blackfish, hands down, should have been more inclusive in their planning. Bottom line on this one, if they wanted him to act a very specific way. Uh, Earlier Catalan mentions a good king would care about these things and Rob's a good king, but the reality is that they're living in a different world right now. A good lord can care about these things and then it still is the wrong move in her eyes apparently. I mean, he's protecting the very people that this morning when she arrived cheered her name, right, as she rode in. Uh, I do think this is pretty parallel to Cersei with these women who are highly inundated in these strong class politics. Uh, We see Cersei later in this book with the women in Magor's holdfast looking around at them as if they ain't shit. And Catelyn here is really disregarding the people when earlier she said a good king wouldn't do that.
1: That's a great point. Absolutely. There's a lot of hypocrisy there. And I love Edmure for this, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Also, like, Edmure won. I mean, it it was at great cost, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But he did fight to defend his people, as you said, and especially their lands. And, like, yeah, I mean, I guess you could just, like, let Tywin go through, but, like, they're going to raise that, that like, countryside, and that's those people's livelihoods, right? Like, should we just let the Lannisters, you know, destroy all of that, too? Like, Enyr was helping these people come together and not just protect them, but defend their homes? Like, how come the North gets to do that, but the Riverlands have to be the ones who are sacrificed? Like, they always are.
0: Yeah, and just because she sacrificed for the Riverlands doesn't mean that they should, too, at that extent, if that yeah. makes sense. Uh, I feel that's, it's definitely something from her attempt to squeeze her family close to her, right? Uh, Every moment that she clings Mm. to them and keeps them close to her, lest they be destroyed and lost amongst the winds of winter. It it causes blind spots for her in many ways. When we talk about Stannis being unyielding, hell, Catelyn is unyielding. She'll break before she bends, and we will see that.
1: We will see that. That is how Her story, I guess not ends, but, you know, life ends. Um, Anyways. (laughs) uh,
0: Fun. We're having fun.
1: (laughs) We're having... Look at all the fun we're having. It does give us insight, you know, also into, like, who, yeah, Catelyn becomes, right? And the decisions she's going to make later, even within this book, because as you said, right, she, she gets a little blinded by all that, and, and you know, she thinks that ednir's softness means he's unable to make hard choices or sacrifices. And those blind spots, like, lead to Catelyn making some of these gambles later in the book, and she's of course very much not soft as a zombie.
0: And also it's a lot of lashing out, like we said. Like, she's limited, she can't do things. And one by one, yeah. she gets more and more taken from her as far as autonomy. During this war, Rob continues to strip her of the things that she's allowed to do. Obviously, when she frees jamie, she she chooses that life, but <laughs> she knew, but she knew she was willing to trade that uh, and, and I do think there's a lot of yeah. you know, when it's the only thing you can do, you do it. you know, the protest. we see Jane rip her dress later and protest, you know of her mom's treatment and of the phrase and what they've done to the northern coalition. It's our, those little tiny yeah. dignities you get to take.
1: Absolutely. Those small stolen moments.
0: Yeah. Catelyn asks if Rob can be reached by Raven, but he's in the field. He'd instructed them to send Catelyn to the twins when she returned to learn more of Walder's daughters for him. Total bullshit. They begin to pack her up, but Catelyn's like hysterical. I'll be staying here with my dying father. Thank you very much. I will not be going to the twins. Edmir swung down from his saddle. He was a head taller than she was, but he'd always be her little brother. I thought we should point this one out, because if we had siblings, it would make sense to us. Also, if anyone was taller than I am, no one is. Edmir's unhappy. He tries to tell her she's unsafe with Tywin coming, but she rebuts he's making for the West. Edmir means to defend the Tully land, though, and teach Tywin a lesson Catelyn says they have nothing to gain from fighting Tywin, and Edmure says they shouldn't be discussing battle plans in the yard. He guides them toward the godswood, angry, sulking, and Catelyn feels really bad for wounding his pride, but she also knows that the matter is a little too important to worry about pride.
1: Interesting that Edmure brought them to a place, the godswood, to discuss things secretly, Mm -hmm. because that's what Catelyn's daughter... Is also doing. Right? Um,
0: I like that a lot. Probably
1: have a similar time. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. Come to the godswood if you want to live.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, that's kind of actually what's happening. And Catelyn tells Amir bluntly beneath the trees that he does not have the strength to meet the Lannisters in field. Tywin has twice his numbers. Amir says, well, Rob's face worse odds, and Catelyn is forgetting that Roose Bolton uh, with Roose Bolton, he has 10,000 men, and and Talhart plans to join the garrison Rob left at the Twins to him. So there. And Catelyn exclaims that Rob had left those men to hold the Twins and keep Lord Walder's peace. And Ednard stubbornly argues that, alright, you know what, the Freys fought bravely at Ox Cross and the Whispering Wood. Ryman and Blackwalder and the rest are with Rob, and Martin and Perwin have been providing good service as well. And you know what, Roose has also married a Frey, right? Rob is going to marry one, and then he says gods be good how much more can we ask of them
0: yeah it's really rough because Edmir is absolutely positively making some great points because like there's not much more they can ask of them they're doing all they can as Freys they've lost a handful in the last couple battles they've caused huge tensions across the family Uh, and like look the Freys suck not counting all their betrayals and shit they suck we're not huge Frey stands we like a handful They've given and given to this alliance, but at the same time, Edmir's not taking stock of the things he's saying. They married Bruce into the phrase already, and Bruce has all of the army currently uh okay. and just like going through these thoughts out loud, he's not really thinking about them and if anything feels consequential, Edmir moving the garrison and giving the o okay k for them to be moved. That's the mistake. That is an issue. That right there, mm-hmm. had you left Tallheart there, that would have been fine. It, maybe it just would have been like one more obstacle for the phrase to murder later on, but at least it slows the plotting. But also the fact that like Bruce has been brought up that he's married into the phrase, and then you realize how many phrases are in this chapter alone, and like we're not even in Major Freyland right now. It's over. Yeah. Bruce built the coffin. Rob's betrayal nails the coffin.
1: Yeah. No, that's a good point. That, for those assurances are there, right? And moving those is kind of a little like, I mean, it's a little like Rob letting go of Theon. But, and all of these, all of these things, right, come together to make a mess for the Starks. But, regardless, I do think, you know, to be a slight Frey apologist for a moment, I I think it's a very consistent character beat for Ednir when he points out, like, how much more can they ask of them, right? And as their future lord, he's thinking of, like, dude, we've asked our v- vassals, like, a lot. They've given up a lot for this war, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's just coming from a place of empathy or duty. I think it's a really practical rationale on his part, and it's an important reminder on a reread in a chapter about, like, oh, maybe vows shouldn't be broken, all right? Because that's it's a big risk when you've asked this much of people, and then you're like, hmm, you know what, Rob. Rob being like, what if I broke my vows? Um, just because I never learned how to hit it and quit it. But um, <laughs> I think Edmure is making a great point that it's also like not great to be too indebted to the phrase. right? You can't mm-hmm. ask them for too much, especially with all of that. And And, you know, in the end, you know, it's probably for the best. I think that Catelyn didn't go there to choose a bride for Rob ahead of time because, like, yes, it would have been a good show of faith, right, that he was working on keeping his promise, but in the end, turns out it would have all just been a show. Because even if Catelyn went, he was still probably gonna he was still probably gonna, like, sleep with jane Musterling, all right and then that would have put cat in an extremely dangerous position um to be at the twins when rob breaks that vow but then again i also ask and and this isn't cat's fault at all right but it's more of just like a what if like if Catlin had been at the twins would rob have been less likely to risk breaking that vow
0: i don't think he would have been less likely I think he still would have broken it in the exact same way because obviously her presence didn't change too much before the Jamie breaking free stuff. Uh, as far as what's going on in the Riverlands, like she obviously has come home and learned that it really doesn't fucking matter what she advises anymore. Like Rob's obviously yeah. going to do what he has to do, and like here's the kicker: sending cattle into the twins would be one more hostage. That's a hostage. That would be literally giving your mother as hostage.
1: So him saying,
0: him thinking to send her to the twins, and it's literally just to keep her busy, is the stupidest thing he could think to do. Uh, If if he still fucks Jane on accident, which he would because he was already fucking her on accident, quote-unquote, Catelyn's dead. Or worse than the phrase rebel earlier, and she's still dead. Uh, And now you have no family, Rob, because that's the thing. There isn't enough gold in the Westerlands that Rob can steal that will pay to bring back Arya and Sansa let alone then bring back Catelyn not enough gold in the Westerlands that he can steal right now for that so you've already lost Arya and Sansa and you already are like well that's too bad about my hostage sisters I guess I guess we just gotta chalk that one up to do better next time mom get remarried good luck Uh, now you're losing your mom too Mm -hmm. guess what Rob you have no family now it's over for you It's over. You've wasted all your family away.
1: Absolutely. But would he, thinking of Catelyn at the the twins, maybe he, like, thinks of his mom and, you know, that, like, makes his boner, like, go away. He's like, oh, no, my
0: mom! Anyway. Mm, If only, if only he had thought about Catelyn before he came. (laughs) Right. Actually, it could be worse now that you say that, though. So, anyways. Yeah. So.
1: Oh well, Rob didn't think of his mom while he was fucking, so clearly everything went awry because of that. Edmure also mentioned Steveran's death, which Catelyn didn't know about because apparently she's behind on it, all the news. Alright, why didn't anyone keep Catelyn up on the gossip? I don't know. Also, like Roose Bolton's new marriage, why didn't anyone tell her? Why was she not invited? Rude. Also, Edmure continues that the Boltons will retake Hall, a bloody business. Katz says, <laughs> and once taken, Tywin will have no retreat. Edmure's <laughs> levies will defend the Red Fork, and he—if he attacks the river—he'll end up like Rhaegar.
0: A bloody business, she says about retaking Hall <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> If he holds back, he'll be caught between Riverrun and Hall, and Rob can come down on Tywin from the west. Edmure's full of confidence in this plan, but Catelyn finds herself wishing Rob had left Brinton behind, a veteran of half a hundred battles, where Edmure was a veteran of one lost battle. Edmure concludes that he has Lord Tytos and Lord Jonos's support, which must be a sign if Bracken and Black would agree on something. Catelyn has fallen weary of the conversation, and she thinks, Perhaps she was wrong to oppose him. Perhaps it was a splendid plan, and her misgivings were only a woman's fears. She wished Ned were here, or her uncle Brynden, or.
1: Okay, you know we can't all be we can't all be sixteen-year-old boar prodigies, all right? My but <laughs> I mean, like I I love Edmure, and you know, to be honest, it's only like an okay plan. Like it succeeds, but again, like at a really high cost. But to focus back on Catelyn, like her doubting her own expertise, when we've seen her actually make some really great military observations already in her previous chapters, is part of, of course, how women are socialized in Westeros and in real life <laughs> um, to doubt ourselves in our expertise. Um, but Catelyn still very much buys into it, right? Despite her talks with Brienne, and she, she does kind of wish some man, any man that she trusts or knows, like, Mostly that she trusts, because she knows some men and she, like, doesn't give a shit about them. But, like, that she trusts we're here to validate her own expertise or that she could just lean on them.
0: Yeah. She wants to be weary, as we'll get to in the yes. following chapters. All of the rest of her chapters, truly. And she thinks about her father and asks if Edmure's talked to him about all of this. And he's like, "Catalin." You've been gone a couple months, his state has deteriorated, and he can't really make war plans now. Admir says two days ago he was replanning her marriage to Brandon Stark. He He promises her the plan will work, and she hopes it will, too. Kissing him on the cheek, and she goes to find her dad. He's abed. Hoster looks haggard, pale, clammy, and the room smells of stale sweat and sickness. Hoster moans at the sunlight that Cat lets in, staring at her like she's some stranger. She kisses him a hello, and we get this passage from him. "'South? Where is the eerie south, sweetling? I don't recall. Oh, dear heart, I was afraid. Have you forgiven me, child?' Tears ran down his cheeks.
1: "'You've done nothing that needs forgiveness, father.' She stroked his limp white hair and felt his brow. The fever still burned him from within, despite all the
0: maester's potions. It was best. John's a good man. Good, strong, kind. Take care of you. He will, and well born. Listen to me, you must. I'm your father. Your father. You'll wed when Cat does. Yes, you will.
1: He thinks I'm Liza, Cat realized. Gods be good! He talks as if we were not married yet. Her father's hands clutched at hers, fluttering like two frightened white
0: birds. That stripling, a wretched boy, not speak that unemployed name to me. Your duty. Your mother, she would. Foster cried as a spasm of pain washed over him. Oh, gods! Forgive me! Forgive me! Forgive me! My medicine. God damn it, Chloe. Here to ruin a passage. Here to ruin the passages. Uh, Some unemployed stripling. Dude, I didn't notice this till you were
1: reading it aloud. Did George write this intentionally so that, like, Hosser Tully sounded like Yoda?
0: Uh, yeah, sure listen you, to you, me, will. you must. Yeah, I'm really right? into that. I'm really into that. Uh, uh, it's just dying talk, you know? This is what old men sound like when they <sighs> die. I've seen a couple of them go, so.
1: I mean, Yoda's real old. He's, like, 900 years old, so.
0: Ah. Uh, well Real talk, this is the worst, right? Like, the failing body. Uh, it's very sad. It does remind it me of my is. grandfather. My dad's dad uh, had dementia really badly at the end, and it's just, like, you know, sometimes they just don't know you. It's awful.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, the whole passage is really sad, especially, you know, also <laughs> knowing the context of it. Liza. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm gonna start with, like, you know, First of all, speaking of John's, John Snow, it's only later, I think, like, after a couple of Yoda sentences that Cat realizes that, oh, he's talking about John Aaron. Uh, when Hoster says that, you know, she's gonna, he, she's gonna wed, like, when Cat does, and turns out it's about Liza, but like, those first few lines when she doesn't realize that, I'm just saying, like, that whole John's a good man, and like, yeah, I'm just saying, yeah, John Snow is also a good man, yeah. strong, kind, well born, um, I don't know, it says take care of you, and I don't know, maybe he would, especially in the 1993 letter where she adds to the wall, but I wonder if Kat, when, like, first hearing this, was like, what the fuck, dad, why are you telling me all this about my husband's bastard son? Until she realizes, um, <laughs> turns out it's It's on not the mind. It's about a different bastard, um, especially with all that, like, forgive me, because it is really sad. I mean, we've talked about it before, but, like, Hoster asking for forgiveness, but too late. Like, he couldn't bring himself to do it earlier. It just created this, like, long cycle of pain for his children, and, and I think, like, Hoster is, like, a great example of good intentions leading to harmful actions, but he, mm-hmm. he does care. He does care about his kids, right? Unlike Tywin and, like... Those were terrible consequences, but perhaps you know, Kat does make a similar calculus in terms of good intentions and harmful actions in her decision to free Jamie later. I don't know. It's a thought runs in the family.
0: Yeah, and breaking that cycle and breaking those predisposed thoughts that they're kind of just indoctrinated with from their culture. And yeah, I do think it's interesting that you bring up Jon Snow in general because it actually kind of is. Similar to the speech with Liana and Ned, right? Of what we know of it.
1: Mm, yeah. And then
0: the strength went out of her. The strength went out of him. Uh, giving a secret before death. Asking to promise things, you know.
1: There's a lot of promises in this chapter.
0: A whole lot of promises.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maester Vyman appears with medicine. He's holding a cup of white potion to Hoster, and peace settles over him. It's milk of the poppy, and I have to say, the way it's described as foaming and white in this chapter (laughs) sounds so fucking good. It sounds like a drugged-up, delicious, foamy horchata or chai tea that I, a person with rheumatoid arthritis and 800 other issues, am over here like, yeah, I would drink Milk of the Poppy. I would be drinking that shit all the time, put a little cinnamon on top, little nutmeg, right? You know, just foamed oh up, God. frothed up. Mm. Add some boba. Let's get crazy. Oh my God. Let's fuck it up. Milk of the Poppy, boba flavor.
1: Will you even like realize like after a while you might be like what is this when you're like with the boba you know what if it's dangerous to do that? What I'm
0: saying is I've only been in Westeros for approximately twelve seconds and I'm already addicted to narcotics in Westeros. Wow, (laughs) that's worrisome.
1: (laughs) It is is worrisome. Let's get you. Let's get you (laughs) different. There's other milk. Why couldn't you have been into like goat's milk, Chloe?
0: Right, the fermented, uh, the fermented, fermented milk.
1: Yeah, why didn't you pick that one? All right.
0: Will it make me forget, Eliana? Will it make me Maybe, forget?
1: Maybe. It might. Apparently, it's like alcoholic, right?
0: Nothing to do but find out. I don't know. I feel like it's a texture thing. Like, it just sounds like drunk cottage cheese to me. It
1: does sound like Kind of gross. Yeah. I'm like,
0: oh, now I'm never going to.
1: But what if it's not, what if it's like, what if it's not, I don't know. I'll have to look up. I bet there's real fermented. I bet it's fine. Somewhere. Yeah. I I bet bet it's absolutely
0: fine. I just bet that I'm just imagining drunk cottage cheese. Yeah. Well, it hurts Catelyn to watch her father reduced to this. She goes out onto the terrace, watching the refugees in chaos below the walls. And then she watches the rivers, thinking those are his rivers. And soon he will return to them for his last voyage. Maester Vyman follows her out, telling Catelyn that Hoster doesn't have much longer left. They should send for Brynden, Lady Liza, perhaps. Catelyn says Liza will not come, and Vyman says, maybe if you write her. She says she will, though it won't change the outcome. She wonders to herself who Liza's wretched stripling had been, some squire or knight or singer, likely. The way Hoster opposed him made him seem base-born or a tradesman's son or a singer, for sure. It feels pointed how poisoned writing a letter to her sister feels now, right? Like, Liza ruined that. The last letter she received from Liza drew them all into this horrible madness and broke all of her trust and her relationship she had built over the last 20, 30 years with her sister. And I do have to laugh, though, that she thinks it could be a singer and that Liza's known for her love of singers, even back then, pointing to Marillion, right, in the next book. And also interesting that other people must know this often that she had this predisposition to singers, because it shows Littlefinger knew what he was doing when he framed Marillion.
1: Oh, that's a great point. Interesting. I also was thinking, like, it, it, in a way it is a singer, right? Like, because Littlefinger uses the songs and legends to I mean, manipulate Sansa mm-hmm. one around here, but also right, he's a mockingbird, right? The mockingbird imitates the songs of other birds. Things like that, so. Yeah. That's it.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I agree.
1: <laughs> well, Catlin has been put to live in the tower that she and Liza once shared as girls, and she's ready to sleep in the feather bed and rest at the hearth once again. But as she nears her chambers, Eutherides Wayne waits with two grey-clad silent sisters. Catelyn knew at once why they were here. Sir Cleos had brought Ned's bones to Riverrun,
0: They had laid him out on a trestle table and covered him with a banner, the white banner of House Stark with its gray direwolf sigil. "'I would look on him,' Catelyn said. "'Only the bones remain, my lady. I would look on him,' she repeated. One of the silent sisters turned on the banner. "'Bones,' Catelyn thought. "'This is not Ned. This is not the man I loved, the father of my children.' His hands were clasped together over his chest. Skeletal fingers curled about the hilt of some long sword, but they were not Ned's hands, so strong and full of life. They had dressed the bones in Ned's surcoat, the fine white velvet with the direwolf badge over the heart, but nothing remained of the warm flesh that had pillowed her head so many nights, the arms that had held her. Ah, oh. Mom. Dad. Oh my God very sad about this and i don't wish to speak about it so you speak about it eliana it's all you buddy
1: it is sad though it's so heartbreaking it's like this is the heart you know of the chapter but i do love the repetition of catelyn saying that she would look on him and as she looks at ned uh, she actually has a similar reaction to sansa right when sansa was forced to look at ned's head I mean Sansa in that moment had to will herself to stomach it because she was being forced by Joffrey but both realize they're like no this is not the Ned they knew and loved this is just a body and another connection once more you know a lot of connections with Daenerys chapters as we're finding between Catelyn and and her but coming back to that line and I think we discussed it last episode also of like that Ma's door tells Danny Um, in Danny 9, and Game of Thrones, of look to your call and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. And that's what Kat is undergoing here as she's seeing her husband's bones, like, that this is not him. Same as how Drogo's body, barely functioning, was not him. And also even Kat asking to be alone with Ned's bones in a moment, like, reminds me a little bit of Danny. Thinking she will give this one last night to Drogo um, for all the nights they had and all the nights to come, and yeah. Uh, and I will also, you know, ask, what does this all mean, you know, for Lady Stoneheart, right? Because this moment as Kat also ponders Ned's bones, like, I think it dialogues really interestingly with another concept that we bring up a lot, uh, that our friend poor Quentin also brings up a lot of men's lives have meanings, not their men's lives have meaning not their deaths and again Ned's death did have meaning in that he chose to risk himself so that his daughters might live same as how Catelyn's about to take this enormous gamble so that her daughters might live Uh, but this dead body is not Ned her memories of him alive are
0: Mm. yeah it comes back to what she told Brienne right fight for the living not for the dead which I'm pretty sure is just like a walking dead slogan right (laughs) <laughs> Shout out Skybound yeah. Entertainment uh, yeah. And she's she's about to be like hm, Fuck that shit <laughs> I'm now the dead uh, Yeah uh, The passion and the color has left her life Right, It's dribbled out of her life without Ned I found this so interesting That his head was reconnected with silver wire To his body mm-hmm. And she remembers his eyes had been eaten by crows And that those aren't his eyes And when she turns away she realizes His sword's not there either just bones. It's so yeah. sad, so empty. Uh, it does feel, you know, a little a little foreshadowy for Rob coming up, of course, with his head being uh, separated mm-hmm. and a wolf's head being sewn on instead to his body. Like how yeah. here they had had to piece Ned back together after chopping his head off. Uh, and of course, it reminds me about Gregor as well, later on with the line of one skull replacing another, and the idea again of those skulls bringing no peace and no justice. Crows yes. are also featured super significantly in this, uh, with poking his eyes out and death literally hanging from the Riverlands sandstone walls. Their faces swollen and black, the crows had been at them. It's just awful and terrible that the crows are circling. They've come for your husband, they're coming for your father, and soon they'll come for the rest of you. Yeah. <sighs> And you know, absolutely. finally, it, the saddest part about this is that I feel it resonates so well with what Loras says in *A Storm of Swords*. Right, when the sun is set, no candle will replace it.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely how Catelyn feels here. And like we said, I mean, of all the people in Renly's camp, turns out Loras is probably the one that she shares
0: the most. The with. most with. Yeah.
1: I, I really hope we get more about Loras's character. I mean, I know that he might be dead. I know that's a possibility, but I like to think that there's something up Tyrell's sleeve.
0: Even if, like, he ends up switching over to Aegon's crew and dies later, I do think there's something going on, right? Like, I think there's some sort of semblance of hope for him. And maybe he will switch over and he will be a King's Guard instead for him, which kind of makes him the only King's Guard uh, of the the Barristan, right? Like He's like the young Barristan uh. here that he's going to get switched over if that happens and he actually stays. So that's interesting. But I do hope that we get more on him. I think there's so much more to his yeah. character that could be played with. I agree. Catelyn says that she must thank the Queen for even this much of Ned being returned. But Eurythides says the Imp was the reason that Ned was returned, not the Queen. I'm glad she gets told Tyrion's the reason Ned was returned. However, of course, that confirms her suspicions that he's super smart and probably orchestrated this big breakout for Jaime. But I do think that this shows she's doing a little bit of projecting on Cersei. Some of those sympathies and empathies that she's hoping she can share with this other mother, hoping that bit of- uh, that last bit of maternal humanity exists in Cersei, because when she loses that hope, I guess she has nothing else to hope about, right? So I can understand that. But so much so, she attributed all of this to Cersei and not Tyrion. Uh, to be fair, she doesn't know that Tyrion just gave his sister, like, fucking poisoning all day just to, you know, be able to do this whole- this whole thing here, this whole- Sending new ideas back and forth, but also did try to break Jamie out.
1: Yeah, I guess she doesn't really like know how much is, Mm -hmm. you know, like in Tyrion's power also. And I mean, she associates it with Cersei uh, because I mean, like you said, she's projecting a lot and Cersei was the one who was there. Mm-hmm. when Ned was beheaded, and she couldn't know that Cersei was like, fuck, this jeopardizes my lover. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think part of why she's thinking of it as Cersei is because when she's saying thank, she has a very specific meaning, right? Because she thinks soon, one day she will thank them all.
0: <laughs>
1: and it's, it's a very pointed line.
0: Like, clearly she doesn't actually mean thank. Clearly she means, I'm gonna kill them all. But... <laughs> It's just like when Sansa thinks, when she exalts, and she's like, Rob will kill you all.
1: Yeah! There's mm-hmm. a there's a clear line, through line between them thinking that. And I think, doesn't Catelyn say that line more or less in like the show, which is ridiculous. She would never say that aloud like that. But
0: We'll get the girls back and later. we'll kill them all. Yeah. Um, That's a Sholny line, yeah making her more aggressive. It's in the last uh, episode of season one, I believe. It doesn't make
1: sense to me because the whole point is this line is so important. It's a single line, but it, it, it signals such a big change in Catelyn's character because finally, finally Catelyn's interiority has caught up to what she has admitted to Brienne. Because now she's finally admitting to herself something that she has been saying the opposite of in previous chapters. Because finally, in this moment, she's admitting, yeah, I do want vengeance. And not just on Cersei. Not just the Lannisters who were there. Not just on Joffrey. All of. All of that. Yes.
0: And Burn it down. <laughs>
1: the, that's the whole thing. Like All the other chapters were leading up to this. And the whole point is it's a development for... Catelyn's character to get here because every time in the previous chapters when it's come up, Catelyn has asked in a very like sad way, she's like, Will vengeance bring my Ned back to me? No. And like, she even says it to herself and thinks it inside. But now she's like been faced with the reality and the finality of Ned's bones and has to really acknowledge, like, my love is gone, Ned is gone, and really seeing that consequence. Catelyn makes the same sort of promises that Daenerys Mm. did that same chapter, you know, when the New Calls, like, killed some of her followers and then abandoned them. She said, I swear to you, these men will die screaming. This is that same promise that Catelyn is making to herself in a similar moment. Because, like, as you said, right, she seemed like there's so much insult in this body that she's been given back. Like, they let the crows eat her husband's eyes. They had to rewire his head to his body and they took his sword, like, all of it, it's lacking. It's She finds herself wanting still. I want, I want, because this is not enough. This will not sate that hunger, and nothing's going to bring Ned back to her. She finally accepts and knows that now, like, what that really means. And as she emerges mm-hmm. from her grief, she finds that she cannot actually make peace with that, despite wanting to, and starts to allow herself to yearn for vengeance. And part of that is because of Brienne. Like, all this time, Catelyn has had to reckon with men uh, who never knew. They never loved Ned. Not like she did. And they're the ones promising her vengeance. And that's empty, all right? That doesn't mean Mm -hmm. anything. It's a performance to be of, like, masculinity of, like, yeah, we're going to get vengeance for your husband. But in her interactions this chapter, Brienne knows what that is like very intimately. And she acts as a mirror for Catelyn. She reflects her loss back to her of someone that she loved as because Catelyn reminds Brienne, right? She knows that pain. And in Brienne, whom Catelyn sees is also a woman like herself, but also not like herself, right? Brienne vocalizes her anger towards Stannis and her desire to avenge Renly, you know, holding his dying body. And in Brienne giving voice to that, she has given license to Catelyn to also voice how she feels about Ned's death in truth for the first time with someone who really gets that and thus Catelyn's able to actually own her anger while she's holding Ned's body and come to want vengeance too
0: yeah uh, that's the thing right like you nailed it Brienne gets it Brienne has suffered because of this society and she feels more vulnerable in sharing those experiences with Brienne She felt comfortable enough to finally say, wow, that is what I want. I do want to fuck everyone's life up for this that they've done to me over all these years. Decades (laughs) of pain. Yeah. She wants to burn it all down. Fire and blood. I got it. I get it. I do. And I'm
1: realizing now that's how Liza feels about her family.
0: She also is, like earlier we were saying, Catalyn lashing out because there's nothing else she can do. Liza is an obvious, like, Liza does not stop lashing. Liza is like a sprinkler mm. that won't turn off. Liza is like, just like screaming out at every corner until she fades out for good. And those, the Silent Sisters are the most representative part of this, right? The Silent Sisters, unable to speak, repressed, oh, yeah. bringing her the bones. I mean, as we close the chapter, We'll see that, because she, she thanks the Silent Sisters, and she actually tasks them with one last task, to take Ned's bones north to his home, to Winterfell. And she provides fresh horses and an escort led by Hal Mullen, which this is the last time we see Hal Mullen on page. He comes back in, in talk, n- not physically, but he's talked about, and I want to say a Storm of Swords cat five, but we never see him again. So where's where's Hal? You in the neck, Hal? You stopped at Greywater, buddy? I don't know. I think he might be. Uh, I've I've read some theories that he could... Some people think he might be the hooded man, too, in Winterfell, which mm. could be interesting. I could see that. Because we don't know where he is.
1: Yeah. You know, interestingly, the man who uh, is very good at saying the obvious. It is not obvious where he is. All right?
0: <laughs> where are you? <sighs> mm. Eliana, you're so funny sometimes. You know, Three that. on.
1: Alright, um, let's end <laughs> this chapter. She gazed down at the bones that were all that remained of her lord and love. Now leave me, all of you. I would be alone with Ned tonight. The women in grey bowed their heads. The silent sisters do not speak to the living, Catelyn remembered dully. But some say they can talk to the dead. And how she envied that.
0: Well, maybe don't get too envious now, Catelyn. <laughs> what a fucking, like, banger of a way to end it. Like, look, whoever I was back in the the early 2010s when I read this, I really wish that I would have realized right here. Like, how did I miss it? How did we not know? It's right here.
1: Yeah, that she becomes, she don't speak. I guess it's also we're
0: tearing this apart slowly. We didn't think to read this way, our very first read. Thank God. That would have been awful. Uh, It 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 wouldn't have worked well. Exactly. It's overwhelming, right? There's so much in each chapter. It all kind of layers together. It's like a seven-layer dip. You know what I'm saying? Like a real good seven-layer dip book. Or like
1: a five-layer dip because we only got five books, but yeah.
0: Interesting. I meant the P.O.V.s, but that too—that way to way to just depress me some more, Eliana. Wow. You're
1: welcome. Oh. You're welcome.
0: Yeah, uh, you don't see it. You don't see it coming, but here I do. I see it. It's right there. How she envied that. Oh, Catalin.
1: Mm, be careful. What you wish for.
0: <sighs> what a chapter. Lots to think about. Lots to ponder. I like this more than the shadow. Uh, Brienne's AV role feels so much bigger. Yeah, I do too. Brienne's role Hot feels take. so much bigger in Catelyn's arc this read through than I remember it. Uh, I feel really glad to be able to focus on that this time and just understand their relationship.
1: Yeah, like in this in this read, like obviously they had talks, but I'm really starting to see more like that. Brienne has a market change on Catlin, You know, it's and not vice just, versa. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, but like you know, you obviously always think like, oh, the mentor figure, right, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like they both really have a profound effect on one another.
0: You know, the saddest part is that this is the relationship that Catelyn should have been able to have with Arya and Sansa and grow up with them and teach yeah. them these things. These are the formative Absolutely. years for them, and she should be, she should be with them right now, teaching them these things.
1: Yeah. So I, there's definitely mm-hmm. an aspect, right? And she doesn't think it allowed. But I mean, that's obviously part of the subtext, right? Of yeah. like, wondering, wondering.
0: Will um, my daughters grow up to be this woman?
1: Yeah, or like, even just like being able to have that relationship, right? With with a younger woman in that way. and
0: Yeah. Especially we see it when she's first talking with Maya, right, in the eerie and her awkwardness that laid kind of that foundation for this relationship with Brienne in a manner uh, of her having to forge ahead, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that about wraps us up for our 133rd A Song of Ice and Fire episode on Catalan 5 in A Clash of Kings. We'll be back next week, not with Catalan. So if you're coming back next week, 7.30 for public, you'll be looking at a His Dark Materials episode, but never fear, we will be back sometime in August with more Catalan.
1: Yes, at some point. But yes, absolutely. If you want to be more sad, though, definitely tune (laughs) into the Amber Spyglass. Catch up with us if you haven't read the His Dark Materials books. They're great. Things that are less sad, though, will be our Patreon episode next month. E- even this month, you know? Laura, it's interesting. It's not too much to be that sad about, right? Yeah.
0: And if you are crazy sad, you could always hit us up on social media and bug <sighs> us for making you sad. Hit us a tweet or a DM over at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or you could send us an email with some of your thoughts at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com.
1: Yes. Or if you would like to keep up with us... You know, in case you would also like to feel, to just feel, um, you can your find your Friday us. doom call. <laughs> yeah, right. Friday feelings, feelings Friday. I don't know. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Audible, uh, Overcast, Acast. Yeah, yeah. We're there. Uh, That that's a good that's a good amount. I think I did
0: enough. I hit That's a, quota. a good petri dish, yeah. <laughs> good sampling. You'll find yeah. us. Look us up.
1: Yeah, Podbean, are all this Podbean. is all hosted. Yes, of course.
0: <laughs> and if none of those will appease your streaming appetite, please check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Girls Gone Canon. You get a private RSS feed of not only these episodes but also patreon special episodes if you're in the five dollar and above tier the stranger tier like eliana mentioned we'll be doing the free cities this month lorath for july and in august we'll try something different we'll talk about ella enchanted and a couple different angles of that and of course we always have a discord happy hour and brunch for our ten dollar and above thunder tier patrons if you're in that tier you have access to our discord server where we hang out talk about sometimes really cool stuff sometimes really stupid shit Just depends on the day. We have a blast, though. Sometimes there are very intelligent conversations. Sometimes there are very ridiculous conversations. You should come be a part of both of those. Check that out again, patreon.com slash girls gone canon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe.
1: And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana.
0: (gasps) We'll see you later.
1: Yep, probably. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Okay. <laughs>